Hey, what's going on, guys? My guest today is not only a history teacher in Eureka, she is also currently running for the Arcata City Council. I had a great time talking with her. It was a lot of fun. We covered a lot, and I think you guys will enjoy it. So please welcome Sarah Schaefer. At uh, H- you went to HSU, right? Um, I did for my teaching credential, but I actually went to Lewis and Clark College up in okay. Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. So that's where I did my undergrad. And that's where the acapella happened. That's where the acapella happened. Nice, yes. nice. <laughs> so for those that don't know you, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I will totally introduce myself. So I'm Sarah Schaefer. Uh, I am running for Arcata City Council, and so I was born and raised in Arcata. Um, I've lived in Arcata pretty much my whole life except for my college years, but I can stay away. I came back, uh, did my cr- teaching credential about, what, in 2014 to 2015, so about six five, six years ago, I moved back to Humboldt County, and I've been living in Arcata ever since. So Nice. Yeah. And so what made the switch from being a history teacher to wanting to go into politics? Well, I'm still a history teacher, still okay. doing it, okay. um, obviously. Uh, I actually... I thought I would have more time with uh, doing Zoom classes and not being at school all day, but actually uh, I'm learning this week that I do not have more time. uh, And I've been on Zoom like from 9 a.m. till... 7, 8 p.m. every day oh, with wow. like, you know, doing doing student stuff all day. And then I've had a lot of extra meetings and events kind of for the the campaign and whatnot. So um, definitely, though, like politi- I've always been interested in politics. I've always loved it. When I was a little kid, uh, you know, people would ask you, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be a firefighter. I would say I want to be a U.S. senator. Wow. And so, you, you know, at, at age seven, I was a very precocious child and was like, yes, I'm going to be a U.S. senator. I love Dianne Feinstein and Barbara Boxer and well, you know, so it's like totally was into it from a young age. Um, you know, and I grew up in a pretty politically engaged family where politics were important. We talked about it. I, I knew about politics when I was in high school and, you know, all the way through. And so I've always been interested in it. But right now it just kind of seems like the time to get involved in politics yeah. um, with what's happening on the political stage nationally. It's just, you know, how can you get involved and seeing, you know, kind of an opening in a local area and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And I, I talked to a lot of people locally that kind of had pushed me for a while. And finally, it was one of my, my friend's mom's friends, who I don't even know that well. And she sent me this text message that was like, Sarah, I really would love it if you ran for city council. And I was just like, okay, this random person sending me this text message is kind of like the, the spark in my head that means... You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to go for it. You got to at least try. So that's kind of what sparked me to do this. But I imagine a lot of other people felt the same way because there are 10 people running for Arcata City Council currently. So Yeah, and there's only three seats, and there's, right? Yeah, three seats, two of which are from for incumbents. And then there's one from uh, Susan Ornalis who resigned uh, her post, uh, you know, few months ago before, you know, this, the whole election process started. And so there's only three seats. There's 10 people running, uh, two of which have, yeah, they've been on city council for a while. The two incumbents that are running, I actually think that they've probably been on city council since I was in like middle or high school. So, oh, so quite a while. Yeah. They're, they're familiar names to city of Arcata. They've, they've been involved for a while. So also that kind of idea that it's like, it's time for kind of some fresh new perspectives, some young voices in 
arcade politics and county politics, local politics. It's where, you know, people can get their start and get involved. And so it's pretty accessible. And I'm hoping that, you know, even, even if I don't win, that some new fresh people, some young faces, some, you know, people that are new to local politics can get involved. So. Yeah, it definitely seems like, I mean, it's comforting that so many people are running. Yeah. Especially and in Eureka too. I mean, not in just Arcata, both of the, the two ward races in Eureka too have some young people running, have some new people running and kind of, you know, not just that same... Because I remember the last cycle, I, d- I don't think that the incumbents like ran, I don't think anybody ran opposed even in like oh, one wow. of the last Arcata City Council races. So it's, you know, it, it hasn't been competitive like this, which is, it's good. It's the sign of a healthy democracy. Absolutely. I mean, it's the sign of people wanting to be involved in their government. So, And especially now, it seems like people are looking for these leaders to be like, okay, here's well, yeah, what we need I mean, to do. We need to step up. If and... you see on the national stage, I mean, people like, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar, like these young, especially women too, and women of color, um, you know, getting involved in politics. And it's kind of like, this is, this is the time. It's all part of the Bernie movement a little bit too, I feel like, but it's like these people seeing, it's like, our voices aren't being heard. We got to get into this and, and people respond to it. People like it. So, yeah. Yeah. It's good to get that new blood get some new ideas exactly. in there yeah some especially of, in local politics because it can get so you know the, the old boys club that you know that's everybody's what keeps getting thrown in. around right as you yeah. hear about the good old boys yeah. that are just running the show behind exactly. the scenes so yeah so is this like a hopefully like a stepping stone for you as uh, like a jumping off point for politics is that kind of what you're thinking or i don't know um i mean uh, that's that's a good place to start. I mean, I yeah, I am young. I'm 28 years old, so there is obviously time to you know get more involved in politics and see how I like it. I mean, yeah, I have been a teacher. I've I've worked a lot with school boards and with you know administrations of schools and like seeing how that works. Uh, there's been a lot of push for me too from the school that I work in to go into administration and you know probably someday become a principal or something like that. But you know, right now it, it is kind of that deciding factor. It's like, okay, so is this going to be the passion? Am I going to put more energy from politics? Am I going to step away from teaching? I don't know yet. And I'm not ready to say that I would Pin stop teaching down. because yeah. I just, I love that so much too, because I'm a total history nerd. And that's why, I, you know, became a history teacher. It was like, what's the most tangible way to talk about history? Like every single day of my life. Okay. Be a high school history teacher. That, that seems the route to go, but you know, it, it is a calling right now, and especially what's going on in the world. It's if you're interested in politics and you want to make a change, you've got to get involved. So, yeah, now's the time to yeah. to step up for sure. Yeah. History, where are you teaching at? Um, I work for Northern United Charter School. Um, it's a formerly Matole Valley Charter School, but a charter school that's operated at the Humboldt County Office of Education. Uh, we do focus a lot on like independent study and rural students that don't necessarily have day-to-day access. People, folks that live in Petrolia, Redway. Um, Shelter Cove, I've had students, you know, that don't necessarily have access to go to a school campus every day. So I work a lot with those students and then just a lot of students too that maybe need an alternative education route. They might not be cut out to go to continuation school. They want kind of a different route. So I work at a pretty small school um, and I teach, yeah, uh, 10th through 12th grades, mostly world history, U.S. history and government. Uh, I also teach what's called the AVID elective, Advancement via Individual Determination. It's kind of a, a national program that's all about, you know, sending kids to college, getting them the training, uh, you know, the idea that you might be a first-generation college student, but that doesn't mean you can't 
go to college and helping kids kind of navigate that system of financial aid and scholarships and kind of pushing them on that path to, you know, follow the dream that they want to follow. So that's, those are my main areas of teaching that I work with. Um, and yeah, so pretty small school, but a lot of, you know, impactful education, working with kids like one-on-one a lot and kind of getting them that personalized education that they need. So how big are your class sizes? Uh, probably ranging anywhere from like 12 to 18. Okay. Yeah. So, so nice, so pretty, healthy size. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. But, you know, I've had classes that only have like six kids in them and stuff too. So mm-hmm. it depends on the, the grade level and how many kids there are that year. But, you know, usually around like the, yeah, 12 to 18. And you guys are solely online. Yeah. Uh, currently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're doing fully virtual. I've been teaching on zoom every day. Uh, it's, it's definitely a new experience for sure. I feel like it's, it's harder to be like, answer this question, do it right now. You, you know, you can't get up in their faces. You can't like, you know, present that passion that I feel like I normally have, but you know, I, I still, you know, we're in week, we just finished week two of virtual school. So I, I feel like it's working out pretty well for, you know, what's going on in the world and it's, it's, it's the best path right mm-hmm. now. So just, just keep everybody as safe as possible. And cause you know, yeah, kids come to school, but you don't know what they do after school. You don't know where their parents go to work and you know, the, the possibility of, you know, infection from COVID is just, it's so amplified in a situation where you're, you know, meeting with somebody every single day and you're in the same place and you're there for seven hours at a time. It's not like going to the store or something. It's totally, yeah, there's so many, unknowns. you know, you can wear a mask and you sanitize your hands, but you're still yep. in the same place all day. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the general consensus amongst the teachers? Are you guys liking zoom? Or are you feeling like it's just I mean, not the same? I know personally, I, I don't feel like it's the same at mm. all, but you know, I know it's, it's the best thing to be doing right now. And I know that it's the, the safest for teachers, it's the safest for students and their families. And so I'm okay with it, you know, and there's so many teachers all across this county, all across this country that are like finding really new, awesome, innovative ways to make it work. And it's cool to see because yeah, this is not our normal wheelhouse. And I was told even like two weeks before school started that we were going back in person and I was ready. I was like, okay, cool. This is going to be great. We're going back in person. And then it's like, eh, no, you're going to do the whole zoom thing. So it was like, you know, a matter of a week turnaround of like figuring out, Oh God, how am I going to do this? You know? And so yeah, it, it's it's definitely been a learning curve and it, for students and families, especially with high school too, you have a lot of students that kind of become that de facto caregiver in their homes. They're taking care of their younger siblings, making sure that they're on Zoom and getting their classes done while parents are off at work and stuff. So it's it's really hard, especially I, I think for high schoolers to, you know, and I have students that have jobs and stuff too. So it's like navigating, you know, dealing with their younger siblings and going to their classes and then maybe going to work. And it's like, it's putting a lot of responsibility, I think, on younger people, too, to just, like, step up to the plate and be like, this is how life works. Yeah, this just is and, what it is You know, now. it's the new normal now. And so it's, you know, getting used to Zoom. And, yeah, you're going to go to college next year, maybe, kids. Uh, it's going to be on Zoom. So you got to learn how to do it. you got to learn how to use it and navigate these different platforms. It's, yeah, it's totally insane. <laughs> Are you guys planning for this to be this way in the spring too? Well, we have made the decision first semester uh, that it's probably, it's going to be this way. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if, if it does come to the decision that it is safe and the county deems it safe to go back in person, we, we might do that on a modified schedule. But, you know, at this point it's sounding, yeah, definitely first semester. And 
my boss said to me the other day, uh, she was like, well, you gotta start thinking about second semester. I was like, oh God, no, I, I can't do this another semester. But, you know, it, it, you know, that might be the way it is, so. The problem is nobody knows. Exactly. That's the hardest part is there's so many conflicting points about what is actually happening and nobody's like, okay, here's what we need to do. It's just, it's everyone's battling with ideas. Well, and to, yeah, bring it back to politics. I mean, that's, there's a, a lack of yes. one national leadership about what our country should be doing in response to COVID. So it, it, it's been hard to, especially like as a state, as California has responded relatively well overall compared to other states, but there's parts of the state that are not responding in the same way. So it kind of overall affects the whole state. And it's just... Yeah. I mean, there, there's a lack of like single message about what we should be doing and what is happening in, in general. Because I know there's school districts in California that are back in person and that are, you know, not online and not virtual. So, yeah. Yeah. And even with masks <laughs> and stuff, I had a buddy that went to Reading a few weeks ago and he was like, nobody was wearing masks nope. inside. I mean, it depends on the county that you're living yeah. in, right? And so, yeah, it's... And now, especially to here with all of the smoke and the fires that's going on, I mean, I, I was all about it. I'm like, yeah, outdoor dining, let's go. I'm ready to go to lunch. Let's go get a drink, whatever. But now it's like, okay, I got to think twice because I don't really want to sit outside and breathe in smoke all yeah, day. For hours. But I don't know if I want to go sit inside at a restaurant because that's available now because we're, you oh, know, it's open. Yeah, a lot of places oh, wow. are having open inside dining now because um, Humboldt County is like technically you know, off that, that watch list. So we are allowed to kind of open that phase two up again, mm -hmm. but you know, do, is it safe? Who knows? Is it, is it better to sit outside in the smoke and breathe that all in than sit inside with the, the risk of COVID? It's just, yeah, it's all over the place. So it's really hard to know, especially here right now with how the air quality is and everything. So yeah, the fire's just really through a curveball for everything. Oh yeah. I mean, the whole state's burning now and yeah. then you've got fires in Oregon. I mean, it's just, Oh, we're surrounded. Like, we are we are literally probably in like the one bubble of a pretty safe place to be yeah. at the time. But especially because that, that fire down in Willits has now like merged with the, the Ruth Lake fire. So it's, it's and, and it's now that they're saying it's the largest uh, wildfire in California history. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, I so have not heard that. Now that they have merged and become one, it's yeah. So, you know, what yeah, my heart do? goes out for all the, the folks. I know people that have lost property and lost things out in Ruth Lake now and going now heading towards Alder Point. I know a lot of people near there in Garberville and stuff. So our community is is feeling it. I mean, yeah, yeah it's happening. What do you do? I mean, so many people were already hurting financially yeah. from COVID. And now you have people losing houses. You have communities that are just wiped, wiped away. Yeah. And I mean, then, and it's so... Yeah, it's it's mind blowing. It's so hard to think about, especially with COVID, like that economic impact of like, how do you rebuild after this? But I mean, California has, you know, we've had a pretty bad fire season for probably about the last five years. And yeah, at least. I mean, we have shown that California is very resilient in this after, you know, the car fire and the Paradise fires last year, like these communities rebuilding. Uh, I last year two years ago santa rosa i mean has totally rebuilt from that and so we just yeah i mean it's so hard it's terrifying and i'm glad that we are in this little coastal bubble where we're not in direct effect but yes. just knowing so many people that are impacted and my dad lives out in willow creek it's so close it's right you know on their back door there so it's you know just hoping that the winds don't go the wrong way and that you know we have so many firefighters out there working so hard to make sure that 
you know, it doesn't jump the river, it doesn't hop over the highway and like keeping it in a contained space. So, yeah, I don't think, um, do they even have it? I don't think they have anything contained. Not, yeah, no, not the, not the new one, the the Hopkins, which is now they call it like the August fire complex um, that connect with the Willowitz one. Yeah. I think it's at like 170 some thousand acres and it's 0% contained. So, I mean, it's crazy. You walk outside and it's raining ash. Oh yeah. Like you just, it's just I'm like, insane. do I wash my car? No. Yeah, it's, right. It's gonna be like yeah, this for five at least, minutes later. Yeah, you're gonna have you, another problem. You, you look, it's the air quality's only gonna get worse this weekend. It's. Yeah. It was really crazy. What was it? Wednesday when it was orange outside. Oh yeah, that, that was insane. Those first days where it starts, you yeah. know, burning. And that was like post-apocalyptic. You walk outside. Yeah, at least today, you know, I'm playing the game. Okay, is it fog or is it smoke? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but you know, by about afternoon, when the fog usually burns like, off, yeah, you're like, okay, this it's is smoke. Definitely yeah, smoke. this is we're just living in this little smoky haze right now. And especially with the winds, I mean, blowing, you know, they're all blowing this way from the very, I mean, we're surrounded. So yeah. you've yeah. got the water, have you got fire? That's yeah. basically what we're caught between right now. Yep. So are you worried about what that is going to mean if you do get into the Arcata City Council? I'm assuming that a lot of, there's going to be more pressure on all of these local communities to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, I guess, in a sense, and like rally together because so many people are going to be hurting for so many different reasons. Yeah. And Arcade and Eureka already, the economy is not super bustling to start off. And now you're going to have all these, it's going to be a little crippled in a sense. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, especially since COVID, I know a lot of businesses are getting those small business loans and trying to get back on their feet and getting things going. And I know the city has, um, of Arcata has applied for various grants from the state and are hopefully getting, you know, some money to give back to these local businesses, but especially after fire and, you know, especially in those small communities, like hoping, gosh, that it stays away from Garberville, you know, like the Southern humble economy is so driven to by cannabis and all these a lot of farms are being destroyed obviously mm-hmm. and you know that creates scarcity in the market which drives prices up and then people can't afford anything and yeah it's it's just totally a vicious cycle of this economic de- depressing that's happening and it, I mean it's hard to know what's going to happen what the impact is going to be because right now we're so unsure about what is going to burn and what's happening you know if it mostly is kept to you know national forest regions and people's homes aren't burning mm-hmm. and people's farms aren't burning etc then you know that economic pull, pulling yourself up is going to be a lot easier than yeah if the entire town of Garberville burns and you know, that that creates so much more uncertainty. And so it's just really about, I mean, coming together as a community. I've, you know, I've been a member of a local Las Coast Rotor Act Club, um, which is a, a partner of Rotary uh, Community Service Club. And just like, you know, seeing how a lot of people come together and are working to raise money for these various fire causes and make sure that these families and people have what they need at least to, you know, get somewhat back on their feet, get clothes, get food, be able to have enough money to, you know, temporarily rent some sort of shelter, whether it be a hotel, whether it be, you know, getting a trailer, whether it be renting, you know, a place in town um, and, you know, kind of pulling themselves back up. But yeah, I mean, it just depends on how extensive the damage is to really even know like what kind of economic recovery is going to be necessary. So yeah. And how long the whole lockdown thing lasts. Yeah. I I mean, mean, are we in the middle of it? Are we towards the end? Are we going to be like this in February? We're still going to be. And I I think that honestly, a lot of it depends on 
the election in November too, unfortunately. A lot of people are like, oh, once the Democrats win, COVID's over because it's a Democratic hoax. But like, no. I mean, once, you know, the election happens and maybe if a new administration gets elected and they decide to put different ordinances in order to control it, as we've seen that have worked in other countries like China, like South Korea, like in Germany, right? That if you put necessary precautions in in place, it's going to lower your infection rate. If you increase testing and you increase hospital capacity, it's going to, you know, let you be able to more do more things because you have more of a capacity to take care of people that are getting sick. And, you know, we're, we're in a good place in Humboldt right now because we've, we've been working to keep our numbers low and we've also increased our testing capacity and we've increased our hospital capacity. So, you know, the ability to take care of, care of people that get sick is enough currently but there's other places especially in southern california and stuff where the hospitals do not have enough capacity to take care of the number of people that are getting sick and so you know that's obviously a sign showing that we aren't dealing with it correctly especially in those areas so yeah do you think that do you think that it is closely tied to politics in the sense that that's why the democrats want us to stay locked down is so that mail-in voting does occur because i've heard a lot of people say that for some reason the democrats think that if we're locked down that mail-in voting will increase the democratic vote then more people are going to vote and more of them are going to be democrats well i mean that's like kind of a general known like statistic i can't cite it obviously Mm -hmm. but the more people that turn out to vote the more likely that democrats are to win in the past like the higher the voter turnout has been usually like Democrats win. And so, but there shouldn't be any concern about mail-in voting at all because the the chance of mail-in voter fraud is like 0.00006%. Like it's not going to happen. There's obvious, there's more voter fraud if you go vote in person. And so I I think this like made up worry about voter fraud due to mail-in voting is it's just it's just totally out of left left field. It's not. It it's doesn't caught have, on. It doesn't have People any are seriously basis. worried about it. People vote by mail all the time. Well, I went, exactly. Right. I went to college in in Oregon, and all of the state of Oregon has mail and voting. They send you a ballot automatically. You can go vote in person if you want, but it is generally like they send you a ballot and you vote by mail. That's like the main way that most people in the state of Oregon vote. Like there are states that already do that. So. They're, they're saying that it's going to cause voter fraud and it's going to cause a controversy. Well, ha- has it been this whole time then? Where's the proof? There, there isn't proof that mail-in voting, which has been widespread throughout, like people vote absentee all the time. I vote, I used to vote absentee all the time when I lived up in Oregon. I voted in California via my absentee ballot. Like, yeah, the fact, it, it, it the systems that exist for mail-in voting are robust enough that they're not going to count your vote twice. They, they know who they send ballots to. It's registered in a system and they're not going to count your vote twice if you mail in and then you go in person. It's just your ballot gets, you know, uh, nullified. It's not valid anymore if you, you know, go and sign in and vote in another way or if you send in two mail-in ballots. Like it gets – the first one gets nullified. There's systems in place to make sure that doesn't happen. So, Yeah, it's it's hard because there's so much misinformation that oh, I yeah. feel like some people just get lost in the middle and then start repeating whatever they hear from their side. Oh, yeah. I mean, just social media and everything like that, everybody thinking that they're an amateur news reporter now, like, has That's made the it thing, that, right? like, oh, well, it's so-and-so said this on Facebook. It's like, dude, go read a refutable source, go to a real news source 
that is trusted. But I mean, it's hard because our president says that the New York Times, which is literally one of the oldest and longest running papers in the United States, is is fake news just because sometimes they speak out against him. So, I mean, it's hard to for a lot of people who rely on these everyday news sources and watch the news on TV and read the newspaper to even know what's going on because you have one person telling you something is fake and you have another person telling you something is real. And so, I mean, it's all about just like reading as much as you can, looking as many different sources as you can, and especially with things that you know, can be proved by science, can be proved by history, and looking at like those real, you know, primary sources and those people that are putting out fact-checked documents and, you know, reviewed journals and everything like that to just like try to find the news source that has the most eyes on it, that is the most trustworthy and being able to navigate that system. Well, it's hard because even fake, the fake news thing is just insane how easily that caught on and how it grips so many people. But the real problem is, that of course that to some extent but whatever news site you look at there's a really good chance it's biased and they're painting the picture one way there's not really anywhere you can go where it's okay this is this is the fact we're not going to spin it our way we just want to give you the fact like you can't go anywhere and get unbiased news even from i've been trying to listen to the bbc you can't do anything it's all biased unbiased i mean so it's 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 funny that you say this because that's literally how I spend the first two weeks of every history class that I teach is that, you know, to, to prove any historical question, you need evidence. And what evidence you use depends on what sources you use. But if you're looking at, you know, a primary source, somebody that was there, somebody that experienced it, somebody that's reporting on whatever event that is happening or has happened, you have to take into account their bias. And you have to take into account, you know, who they are why they're writing about this event, how it impacted them. You, you have to be able to look at everybody's bias and understand that, yeah, we're, we're people. We interpret things differently. And, you know, being able to look at news sources and understand the bias of those sources and just taking multiple sources and being able to say, okay, who's saying this? Who's saying that? Who's, who's more, you know, what, what is the majority opinion on what's going on? And kind of creating your own view of it. And and it's hard for a lot of people because they haven't necessarily like academically been trained in the ability to like read and analyze multiple sources. To the everyday person that's trying to access news, it's it's utter chaos because there's so many, you know, different sources out there that if you're not like trained in the ability, like like a historian to like analyze multiple perspectives and read multiple sources and put together a common idea, you're kind of just shit out of luck and you know going with whatever billy bob said on facebook last week and so yeah how many people get their news solely from facebook oh yeah so many oh god so many i bet the numbers are staggering it's it's scary i don't want i don't want to think about it but yeah it's, it's probably insane yeah and how many people are only getting their news from one source like I would imagine most people yeah i do not see a lot of people reading an article and then being like hmm i should go see what they're countering this well with. so i got an argument on facebook the other day with some oh, guy man. who was saying you know climate change doesn't cause the fires okay that's fine he posted this forbes article i consider forbes usually fairly reliable maybe slightly more towards the conservative side uh you know saying that this uc berkeley uh scientist has said that there's no direct you know that f- global warming exists but it does not cause fires 
okay, but then you can go read, and I found all these other sources, one from MIT and one from NASA and one from PBS, who I also all consider reliable, that say, yes, fires aren't directly, you know, climate change doesn't cause fires just to happen, but these fire seasons that we are having that are so much worse and so much longer are obviously exacerbated by climate change because it's drier, it's hotter, and those are conditions that make fires worse, right? Yes, we've had forest fires, wildfires throughout history. Native Americans used to practice controlled burns to manage these forests. That fell out. We've had poor forest management. That is one reason that is often talked about in the news as why these wildfires are happening. But we also you know, have to take into account that the world is drier, the world is hotter, California is in a drought year after year, we're not getting as much rain as we have in the past, and that's obviously making these fires worse, which is a factor of climate change. Okay, so yes, the fires are not caused by climate change, exactly, but they're so much worse because of it, and we obviously have to worry about climate change when we're talking about these fires, because they're obviously correlated and they're obviously related. And so it's just like, yeah, you can take this one news source, but you have to look at the whole picture and look at, you know, all of these findings about all of these different factors that affect this thing. So, yeah, the climate change one is weird because a lot of people hear climate change and they instantly want to start pushing back. Right. It's, it's science. It's insane. It just I mean, and same with with COVID. I mean, it's science. They're, they're scientists. Do you not want to believe scientists? That's fine. Then if you don't want to believe science and believe scientists, that's that's your viewpoint. Okay. But like there is scientific evidence to prove that, yeah, climate change is happening. The world is warming. There are more greenhouse gases causing us to contain heat in our planet due to the ozone. And it, I mean, it's science. It, And if you want to deny science, that's your prerogative. Believe that. But I, I would hope that we would have people in government that believe science and that trust in, you know, this system that we have been proving works, the system of experimentation and asking questions and solving scientific problems that has kind of, you know, been in place for since like the 14, 1500s. So I think a lot of people get. I think a lot of people go against science because science is fluid to some extent right there are of course facts like gravity i mean nobody's going against gravity i don't think but like yeah. flat earthers and stuff well and that's I, like yeah the scientific law versus scientific theory yeah. and like the level of proof that needs to go into those two things and yeah. i think you get a lot of pushback against science as well i mean due to a strong religious presence in this neighborhood and a lot of pushback for neighborhood country um strong pushback from the religious right against science because there are a lot of parts of science and laws of science that go against, you know, basic Christianity. And so I think that's why there is a lot of pushback, but. Well, and even so, I mean, I, I would be interested to know what the extent would be today, but science occasionally does get biased and does get swayed in other directions that aren't actually scientific. And so I wonder if a lot of people go against that because they're like, oh, if, you know, science has been wrong in the past. Why aren't they right this time? Yeah. You know I mean, what I mean? But you got to look at that process too. Like it, it could have been wrong, but then it was proved differently through scientific process. That's Yet the again, thing is you through have to the keep, scientific method. Yeah, you have to keep Which, digging. you know, tells you to, yeah, ask a question, form a hypothesis, conduct an experiment, 
and observe an experiment and then come to a conclusion, you know, and that, that could get disproved, that could get changed based on what technology you have available, you know, who is interpreting the observations, who is, you know, working with these experiments. So, I mean, there, there is the some research. funding the research. Exactly. There's some subjectivity to it. And, you know, you get a lot of people saying, oh, there's scientific proof that masks don't work. But how many studies are there? It's always sure, like maybe one it's or like two. one or two. Yeah. You know, so, but they so run it's like it. looking at the majority of it. Well, science proves it. Yeah, but, you know, how robust of science? How many people? How, you know, and it goes back to the same thing with the fake news. Like how many sources are saying this? How many people are saying this? So you just have to look at like what is the majority consensus on a lot of these things. And it's just, I don't know, navigating information in today's day and age where everybody thinks that they're an expert on everything because they have Google is just, it's, it's crazy because information is so readily available to everybody all the time. And so it's, it's just depending on how you interpret that evidence, how you interpret that, you know, this information that's coming to you and, and nobody yeah. can, and nobody there's can. So yeah, there's so much. much and it's constant. It's yeah. ever changing. And it's always, just right in your pocket that you get overwhelmed. You yeah. look, you read one article and you're like, okay, I'm done. Cause yeah. there's just too much. There's too much. Well, that's what, yeah. My friend was saying that, you know, they were kind of going through some mental health challenges recently. And one of, one of the things on like their, their list of ways to like become more calm and become de less depressed about everything was to stop watching the news throughout the day. And was just to like unplug from that because I know it like causes a lot of people anxiety. A lot of people, are not dealing with what's going on in the world very well right now. And so, you know, even being able to unplug from the fact that like, yeah, news is constantly available in our pocket all the time is so important. It's hard because you want to stay informed. Yeah. But then there's a fine line where you're just eating too much of it and it's starting to change how you perceive everything around you. Yeah. And you just go into a dark spot. You're like, oh my God, the world the yeah. world is burning. There's, there's a time I got to, yeah, I, I always get to the point where I'm like, I got to, I got to unplug from this. Yeah. <laughs> like, Especially I cannot. Especially with social media. Yeah. Social media and just, because that's how my news starts of the day. You know, you start going through, you scroll through Instagram, you scroll through Facebook and you're seeing, oh, this happened. Oh, this happened. What's that? Click on this article. Click on that article. And then you start reading it all and then you become overwhelmed and you're like, what, what? Okay. And then you have to just unplug from it because it's just, there's so much information coming in that usually of late is bad and yeah it's, it's never good news it's never oh we cured this person who had cancer and oh we're on the brink of finding well, this out that's going to help people and that's what makes a good news cycle too i mean people yeah. are more likely to tune in if breaking news this bad thing is happening and you know more people will watch it more people will read it if it's sensational and somewhat you know scary it's all about fear too and you know yeah. Who are you going to let control you when the scary stuff is happening? And so. I don't think people realize just how much that affects them. Yeah. Consuming all of that negative, horrible news. I don't think they realize that like that it's going in like you're consuming it, but it's not yeah. going anywhere. Like you're just you're holding you're, on to that. You're just sitting there and marinating yeah. in it. Yeah. Especially oh, yeah. at the start of your day. Oh, of course. And like, yeah, the happiest I've been in like the last months is I, I went camping a couple weekends ago no cell phone service it's probably well, great for a whole weekend it was it was heavenly i didn't yeah. have to think about the news i didn't have to worry what was happening i didn't have to read facebook it was it was great <laughs> you know so it's 
I, there's definitely like a correlation between, you know, this, this weighing anxiety that I think a lot of people are feeling nowadays and, you know, what's going on in the news cycle and what they're reading on social media. And it sucks. It's unfortunate because it, it, it's sad to to know that so many people are struggling with anxiety and depression and, you know, it's caused by this world that we're living in. But I also think that there is something to be said about sitting down and unplugging and, you know, just thinking about yourself for a while rather than everything that's happening around you. So I wonder how we're going to look back on things like social media like 10 years from now. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny. Like, I've told this to my students, like as a history teacher, when you're working with like, yeah, primary sources, like what things are indicative of what's going on at the time. And I was like, honestly, like my children, your children are going to be in history class and they're going to be reading Donald Trump's tweets as a primary source to like, you know, see how the administration, how people were reacting to what's going on at the time. And I was like, how and that's just that? going to be like, what that's a thing. Or you're going to be looking at so-and-so's Instagram feed and this person's Twitter to like... Yeah, as a primary source. And, and it is a good source to like have that constant throughout the day update of what's going on. I mean, the fact that that information is so readily available. But yeah, just like thinking of, oh my gosh, historians are going to be looking at this and like using it to like form opinions about the past. It's, it's crazy insane. because like the insane. things that people say on Twitter and the things yeah. that Trump says on Twitter are just like, wow, sensational. It's yeah. So... Yeah, I do not think that a president should have access to Twitter after everything that's gone on. I mean, some yeah. of the things he says are funny, and they would be a lot more funny if it wasn't the president saying, saying them. them. Yeah. But just thinking about that, that... Well, it's like half the time you read it, you're like, okay, is this the president or is this like a petty teenage girl that's like mad at somebody for like talking smack on them at school? Like, what are you saying? A lot of say? interesting characteristics. <laughs> Yeah. But it's ins it's insane. I've never thought about that, but that is that's scarily true yeah. how accurate that is going to be. Yeah. But there's just going to be a book, probably just a book no, of Trump tweets. It'll be published tweets. after yeah. his administration. You can buy the Trump Twitter book from 2016 to drops. 2020. Oh my god. Or 2024, I don't I don't know right now, but I mean him narrating in the background just going Oh yeah, get it on audiobook, just have god. him reading all of them. Oh gosh, yeah. That's <laughs> That's a scary thought. Yeah. But that's where we're going. Yeah. That's that's the direction for better or worse. And I don't think we can stop it. I, I think that the cat I mean, is out yeah. of the bag now these, at this these, point. These social media companies have so much stake and control oh, yeah. in what's happening in the world everywhere. I mean, all across the world, everybody has a Twitter. Everybody has an Instagram. It doesn't matter what country you live in. It's, yeah, it's far reaching. It's, yeah, it's everything. Even homeless people have <laughs> oh, yeah. phones. They've got Twitter accounts, Instagrams. Oh, yeah. Everybody is... I know right. I, 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 this, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but I just always remember this time I was, I was with my mom and we were down in Southern California and there's this homeless guy and he, and he was talking on his cell phone and like doing some stuff and pushing a shopping cart, like full of everything. And my mom was just looking at him and he turns to her and he says, what, you never seen a homeless guy with a cell phone before? Oh, and me and my mom just couldn't stop laughing because, and, th and this was like probably like 10 years ago at this point. Um, and, and so especially now, yeah, you see so many more. Everybody has a phone. Everybody has something in their pocket that they can connect with the world, connect with somebody with. So, And it's not even just a, like a flip phone. Like it's oh, an no. iPhone, yeah. like a new iPhone. I mean, yeah, if you go down to like they always have the like get your free cell phone here, you know, uh, the, the booths and the plans and stuff. And you can get a very, very basic smartphone for free pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so everybody has that information it. at your fingertips. It's, yeah. It's weird. I don't think we as people are meant to be that connected to each other. To be able to just reach out at any time and touch any other person yeah. is kind I mean, of insane. It, it's great. I mean, it does build communities and it makes, True. you know, and especially people that might not connect with the community that they meet in person or they currently are with, you know, and be able to have a community that extends beyond that. I mean, and especially in this age of the, of the pandemic when we're not supposed to be you know, meeting face to face with people or going out with people as much. And so being able to connect through a digital platform is kind of a game changer and makes that is a good point. things a lot easier, especially in this day and age where, yeah, people are and it's it's proven now. I know somebody that works for Twitter and they were like, okay, this is great. We can just get rid of our offices. You guys are more efficient working from home anyway. We're never going to go back to the office. You know, in a sense like that, that it's being shown that working from home is just as productive and just as plausible. It's kind of cool too. In, Do you think that's that a good sense, thing? But That a lot uh, of these businesses are kind of going remote? I mean, it, it depends because it does take away that like social interaction, face-to-face -face kind of you know, being able to meet with a person and talk to someone, uh, the ease of, you know, just being able to walk down the hall to your coworker's office and say, hey, what do you think about this? Rather than having to draft a whole e email. I mean, there, there's pros and cons to Absolutely. it, of course. But I mean, I think, you know, making it at least as an option where maybe, you know, you work from home two out of five days a week or whatever, you know, it, it kind of just creates different opportunity for people in the future, I think, and just realizing that this is a viable option, it is possible. Uh, it probably, you know, lowers a lot of expectation for paying for childcare and things like that too. That's for a, a lot good of point, people, because huh? um, I, you know, that's that's a huge factor for a lot of people is paying for their childcare and going back to work. You know, that kind of navigating that. So there, there's pros and cons to it, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, especially, I mean, if you're just working in an office building and you've got your little cubicle and you're already doing all your work on your computer, why not just do it from home? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it makes more sense. You don't have to travel. You don't have to spend hours driving to and from work. Well, yeah, especially in places where, yeah. Yeah, if you're down in LA and you're crazy, commuting it's... two hours both ways. Yeah. Come on. Well, and it's allowing a lot of people too to like live in areas that are less expensive as well. I mean, a lot I know of people are moving out of California. Are, yeah, moving out of California, or at least like you know, moving out of San Francisco or East Bay, you know, where it's the most expensive areas to live, and being able to you know go to somewhere with more affordable rent and still being able to do this job, it's it's benefiting a lot of people too. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it just it goes both ways, doesn't yeah. it? I wonder what California is going to look like after this, not just with the fires, but with the pandemic, because a lot of people are leaving. Yeah. They're calling it quits and they're getting out of the state. Well, especially because like the major industries in California are these tech companies and they're kind Which of at the online. forefront of, you know, saying, yeah, we can do this online. This is, you know, how technology works. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of the ones that if they went back on it or like, oh no, we can't work from home. Oh no, we can't use this technology. It's like, but, but you guys invented it, you know? So it's, it's making more sense to kind of move to that that future where, yeah, you can work remotely. You can use these different technological platforms to upload work and be on Zoom or Skype or whatever, you know, format you're using. So, you know, what's interesting is these big tech companies, the CEOs and the people at the head of it don't really use their product and yeah. don't let their kids use their product. 
Yeah. It's like they know. They're like, listen, Gosh, you built this. Gosh, if I was this. the head of Facebook, I wouldn't let my kids oh, use God, Facebook. No. If you actually knew what was going on <laughs> yeah, underneath exactly. all of that, you would never you would never touch it. Oh, yeah. It's like the TikTok thing, but that's a little more open because everybody knows that that's just connected yeah. so heavily to the state of China. Yeah. I mean, but Facebook. But then the idea too, like, I mean, thinking about, you know, freedom of information, being able to use things for the speech, being able to use different apps, like... Yeah, can our government ban that? Is that okay? What do you think about that? You think uh, they shouldn't be able to ban it? No. I mean, you're knowingly giving your information to this source, whether you care or not. You know, like, just because Facebook is an American-owned company doesn't mean that they're not mining data the same way that TikTok is, you know? And so just because TikTok's based in China and you decide you give your information to that source doesn't make it more or, or less different really than, than Facebook or than Instagram, you know, Facebook and Instagram are, are one. Um, so, you know, you're accepting the terms of use and that's, that's your prerogative. I think a lot of it comes from the connection to the government. Yeah. I mean, giving your data to Facebook and to like Apple or Google, they're not afraid to tell the U S government no. And they've done it repeatedly. They wouldn't give, Apple wouldn't open the phone of that guy. Yeah, it was. Yeah. But I mean, well, China, it's hard for us to know, too, because it's, it's outside of our scope. It, it is a different country. So it is hard for us to know. Yes, it's a Chinese company, but how much connection is there with the government? How much information is the government getting from this company? Like, we don't know that. So I feel like that's what, you know, creates this apprehension and fear around it because we're not the ones directly in control of it. Like mm -hmm. we are, you know, as a country with Facebook and Twitter and all these other tech companies that have a lot of access to our information. So yeah, it's a scary thing. The data thing is, is yeah. A oh, I, I, I know people that around. still like, will not, you know, will not accept the Apple's terms of use and still like, don't subscribe to the smartphone thing and stuff. And, you know, there's the people of, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. So why would I care? You know, I'm kind of like one of those people, but a it's, lot of people it, make it's that also argument. just like, yeah, how how far is too far though? And mm -hmm. like how much it's do like you trust slope, your government right? with? I mean, yeah, it becomes a very slippery slope. Yeah, it's like how much is too much? How much is you know making you feel uncomfortable, making you feel like you've lost your right to privacy? How much? And, and two, I mean, there are you know certain things within the Constitution. The the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution does provide some levels of what is considered that right to privacy. And so, like, when does it become an infringement upon your constitutional rights? And I think that's what also creates you know the problem with TikTok and with China that like, you know, their view of natural human rights is definitely very different than what you know is considered. The, natural human rights yeah. in the United States. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's a difference there, of course. But have you heard about what is going on there with the Wiggers? Yeah, that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is. That's a touchy one. Yeah, I mean, that's a hard subject. They're committing genocide. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't think and, it's outlandish to say the that. fact that you know it, it maybe hasn't gotten like large scale that there is war taking place and there are battles and there are things like the united states had no interest in getting involved in world war ii until japan bombed us yeah. we had no interest in knowing what hitler was doing to the jews and knowing you know basically that the holocaust was taking place like i think the united states have proved through history that we don't really 
care what other countries are doing unless it's directly affecting us, which I obviously think is is wrong. And I think, especially now that we are part of, you know, a semi-global government, like part of the UN and knowing that this is taking place is, I mean, you have to do something about it at some point. And I think that, you know, going in conjunction and coming to a consensus with other nations that have have stake in this and know what's going on in the world, I think is going to be pretty important coming into the future. And I, China is very secretive about it. They keep it pretty under wraps, but enough information has been let out to, to know that, there is at least a rounding up and a imprisonment of a people re-education. based on and a reeducation, right? Yeah. Based on you know a cultural ethnic identity, minority. a cultural yeah. identity. So, yeah, it's interesting that you said. So you think the U.S. is not doing enough globally, which is interesting because a lot of people feel we're doing too much trying to police. Well, it d- depends the world. on what areas I guess you're talking about, right? That's I mean, true. Well, it's hard to get involved with you know, a powerhouse like China, because that, I mean, what do you do? How do you stop that situation? You could put on pressure with the UN, I suppose. But where does it go? Because China has the power to say, yeah, screw you guys. Like, it's not like we can. Oh, yeah. It would hurt our economy if China decided that they didn't want anything to do with us and wouldn't trade with us and wouldn't buy anything from us and wouldn't sell anything to us. And I mean, and then, you know, something like that shows you that the world is ran by economics and ran by capitalism rather than, you know, a basic moral code and understanding how to treat other people, you know, which historically speaking, yeah, has not been the way we've dealt with things. I mean, it matters who's making money, who's trading, who is getting the economic benefit. And, you know, that's kind of been what our relationship with China has been. So we, we've often turned a blind eye to things in China that throughout history that have been, you know, obvious violations on human rights. And But this is a big one. It's an obvious and violation been, yeah. of human and rights. And it's been going yeah. on for a few years now. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be changing. It seems like they've got it. I think our current administration doesn't care about that. I'm just going to put that out there. I think that do, you know, our current administration doesn't really care what's what's I going on think, over there. Yes, I think most Americans don't care. That's I don't know too. if it's they don't care or if they don't, don't know. know. They don't right? know. Right? Because got, we've got so many problems I mean, I so didn't know recently right until now. I watched what John Oliver did a spot on it like a month oh, ago. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know he that. he did a whole segment on his show about it. And I was like, okay, cool. This is the first time hearing about this thing that's been going on for, it sounds like, a couple of years. And I was horrified and I was, you know, and then I started, yeah, you know, Googling it, doing my own research, reading about it, making sure what he was saying was, you know, really on point about it. And it, yeah, it it comes back as this is happening. And I feel like a lot of world governments aren't acting or necessarily knowing what to do due to China's, you know, power on the global scale. And so, I mean, it, it's it's hard to you know, know how the U.S. is going to react and know what the U.S. is going to do about it and if it's going to be anything. And what they can do about it. what they it. can do about it. I mean, yeah. It's, so. a, it's, yeah, I don't know why. It just seems like it's just, just scooting under the radar. Like it's some people I mean, know and, about it. And that's it. also due to like China's privacy laws and, you know, lack of connection yeah. to the internet and global things like that. And so... But a lot of it has gotten out. Yeah. there. I watched a video the other day somewhere and it was this girl who actually was, you know, they picked, scooped her up, took her to one of these re-education camps and 
I don't know how you get out, but she eventually got out and then she took a video of herself talking about it and tried to get it everywhere. And it was like, what yeah. is happening? What is this? Like yeah. this is happening in... In modern day. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have... That's the craziest part is how do you tell another country, hey, you can't, you can't do this. I mean, you can tell them, yeah, you can't do that, but what teeth is behind it? Yeah, what are you going to do to back it up? You know, you need to have more, you know, if the U.S. just tells them that, they might not care. But if you have the U.S. and Great Britain and France and, you know, whatever other, Japan, whatever other countries, you know, come together and say, hey, we're not going to trade with you. We're not going to participate in global economy with you if you are continuing these crimes against, you know, these your own people. Right? And so... You know, it takes it to a different foreign policy global level. You have to get more people involved. You have to get the UN involved. And, you know, whether that is happening yet, it, it's not. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it's there's a push for that. There's got to be, you know, kind of a global push for something like that. But I think at this point, you know, the U.S. isn't really taking a stand against it. And nobody else is going nobody to without really else the U.S. Is yet either. So, yeah. well, the pro we have especially now we have so much going on within the u.s that everyone's we're too we're too focused yeah. on just what we're doing we well, can't see what else is happening i mean and historically speaking it's really easy for countries to turn a blind eye to what's going on within a country as long as they're not affected mm -hmm. and that's you know historically speaking that's how it's really been because a lot of countries don't care until it's you know, they, they've crossed borders or they're affecting trade routes with another country or, you know, anything like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of self-interest going on. It's got to be really interesting being a history teacher and knowing all of what's happened in the past and then being able to look at today and be like, we're making these same mistakes. Well, like, that's this the whole just point happening. of studying history. It's like, why, why, why do you even study history? Well, it's to know what happened and to not make those same mistakes again. Mm -hmm. And then when you're seeing those same things happen, it's like, what is going on? Oh God, on? we have to, we have to do something now. Do you not remember what happened? Like, I mean, there's been a lot of comparisons drawn recently between like what is happening in the U S currently and the rise of nazi germany and that one's like looking at though. looking at indicators of fascism and like seeing what's happening and i mean you can you know obviously it's not like full-blown but you can look at indicators of you know fascism existing and say hey that that's happening here what you is know? your take on that you think that we're slowly starting to see those i mean i think that there are certain slips into Certain things. I mean, you can look at, yeah, like we were talking about fake news, like this, this stream of basically government supported news propaganda being fed to you. I mean, if you looked at like the recent Republican National Convention where they basically said that COVID is gone and everything is great and our country is doing awesome and you're a normal person living your life and you still don't have a job and you can't go back to work because of COVID and your grandmother just died last week, you know that's not true. You know that is a lie that the government is telling you. I mean, that is an indicator of slipping towards a fascist government. I mean, th things like that. This this stage that we're living on where, you know, you hear a lot of people saying racism doesn't exist and that anti-fascists and the Black Lives Movement are terrorists. That I mean, that's, you know, taking what's obviously an enemy of the state and putting it on a pedestal as a terrorist organization. That is like a slip towards this idea of fascism. And so, I mean, 
you know, creating greater state control and greater state power, you know, around this kind of cult of personality, you know, a single leader that is kind of creating, you know, a cult of personality is what it's called. Like people are obsessed with this one person and this leader and we're in the red hats and all that stuff. Like it, 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 it's, you wouldn't say it's necessarily, this is Nazi Germany, but it is reminiscent of things that have happened before that have led to not great situations. I will say that. So mm-hmm. That one's hard because people hear that and then they instantly jump to, oh, it's just the left crying wolf. They think Trump's so bad. He's, he's Hitler. Yeah. I mean, how do you go against that? It's, you, you say, look at history and look at what's happened and look at what we're doing and think about it for a second, you know? I have no idea. That is yeah, such, I mean, I mean it, it, it's I, a, again, it's a slippery slope. It is a slippery slope. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to believe you when you talk about it. And I don't want to get too into it because people are like, <laughs> oh, my God, you're totally crazy. But it's just you got to look at indicators of different things and mm-hmm. understand that we are slipping into a government that has when you're having a president that's saying that he is not going to accept losing an election. That, when he talks about Because not he's so confident down. he's going to win. Yeah. You, you got to be a little bit worried in the back of your mind, right? That you're, you're slipping I, towards something that is I'm scary. I'm worried. I don't think that, man, I don't know. I have gone back and forth so many times on the whole Trump situation. I think... Before he was elected, I thought, you know, I kind of fell in with the ranks of, you know, this is this is really bad. Well, like Trump and, winning is And you th- you bad. thought it wasn't going to happen. No, you I thought it was there a was joke. no way it yeah. could happen. When he was running, and I remember sitting there yeah. on election night and watching as the states live and then he won Michigan and you're just like, okay, it's over. Because there was a lot of again, misinformation kind of leading and I feel like a lot of people wouldn't tell pollsters, wouldn't tell the public, you know, that they were going to vote for Trump. Well, yeah. How many people are actually answering those polls? Exactly. And, I mean, or a- answering them truthfully. And so, you know, that's a whole part of it. <laughs> I, it's going to be bad. Either way, whatever happens in November, yeah. it, I don't think it's going to be a smooth transition yeah. at all. If he wins or loses, it's yeah. not going to be a smooth transition. Yeah. People are going to be furious if he wins and people are going to be furious if biden wins yeah and i mean constitutionally speaking though like he doesn't necessarily want to contest an election because i mean the way that the constitution is written if there is no clear winner and the constitution states that this uh the speaker of the house becomes president if nobody has decided by inauguration day you know who is the winner then yeah trump doesn't want nancy pelosi becoming president either so i mean obviously that creates kind of a pressure to follow, you know, the the outcome of the election. But it's just a whole thing. And, you know, you can talk about the Electoral College also and what effect that has on, you know, the overall outcome. Because we saw in 2016 an yeah, election where, vote. you know, a president lost the popular vote but still ended up winning the electoral vote. And there hasn't been a change since that. But still always, you know, looking back at is the Electoral College – viable does it make sense does it i mean it did in 1787 when the constitution was written and states were really small and not a lot of people lived in this country but you know today where a state like wyoming has power you know more more electoral votes and more power proportionately than california does it it kind of brings up questions about okay is is this fair is this how our elections should be conducted 
I know there's countries out there that think that it is totally insane and do not understand at all how the electoral college works. I remember I went to Spain a couple of years ago and I, I met this guy from Brazil and he was like, so how did Trump become president? Because it doesn't really make any sense to me at all. And it was like, how do you explain the electoral college to somebody to a Brazilian person that has like no concept of how American politics works. It's like, well, we got this thing and then the states vote on this, but this person gets to decide even if the state, it just, yeah, it makes on the scale of national politics today, it really doesn't make as much sense as it did in, yeah, 1787. Things get updated. Things need to change to go with changing times. And so... But it's hard to amend the Constitution also, so... True. Yeah, People hold hard. that. It's yeah, that is, Yeah. <laughs> Well, it makes, I mean, the Electoral College makes sense in theory of why it was put there. Yeah. Almost so that we didn't have a situation kind of like we had. Like it was so that most, you couldn't just vote anybody up there, right? Well, and that was a time too where the the, the average populace that was bo voting was very undereducated. Oftentimes they probably were not even literate. And, you know, they, they were the ones making decisions, but then they had these state electors who were the well-educated people and could, you know, make sure, okay, well, you might not really know what you're talking about. So we're going to just make this decision anyway. And we've kind of kept that, even though we've moved in this modern age where everybody has, as we were saying, access to information and access to technology. And, you know, the majority of our society is literate. So it, it doesn't really, we don't need that same check that the electoral college used to provide. Mm-hmm. In, in today's modern society where everybody has access to information, everybody is literate and, you know, people can make their own political decisions for themselves. So. Well, it's, it's still a huge problem because even if you are extremely well-educated and even with all of the information everyone has access to now, making the right choice is still extremely difficult. And even deciding what the right choice is, yeah. is extremely difficult. There are a lot of very intelligent people who, you know, if you stepped back and looked at what they were doing and the choices they were making, you'd be like, this is, this does not oh, yeah. mix. Um, a prime example, and maybe I just am not well-educated enough on this subject, which totally could be the case, is the bill that was just passed, the SB 145. Have you heard about that? Tell me about it. <laughs> it is a Senate bill. And essentially what it does is it, it's like an amendment for, um, oh, what is the word? For um, sex offenders, for okay. what qualifies for a sex offender. So now what this amendment does is that if you have sex with someone who is between 14 and 17. It's only for that age group, 14 to 17. If you are within 10 years of age from them, um, you don't, it's not mandatory that you register as a sex offender. It is up to the judge to okay. decide. Yeah. Which seems Well, I mean, there are, some, there are some states where the age of consent is 14. Yes. Within this union. So I think yes. that that does... You know, unless there is a national standard. For no, that's for, this what, is for California though. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm, that's what I'm saying. Unless there is like a national standard for age of consent, mm -hmm. um, it, it does end up creating kind of a blurred line between what is acceptable because you could, you know, commit a crime, crime, statutory, 
or not in California with, say, yeah, a 15-year-old, but that 15-year-old could give consent and that would not be considered a crime at all in Mississippi, right? So I, I, I guess I'm saying that it, it is up to a judge's discretion, but can it, you know, depending on the exact parameters of the crime and, you know, everything that informs what happened. Mm -hmm. That just seems very, that seems like a slippery slope to me. Yeah. I know we keep going back to that, but it seems like, and what they used to I mean, justify, I don't think the age of consent should be 14 in any state. No. <laughs> that's, that's Alabama's yeah. prerogative, but, yeah. um, well, in California, you know, in California it's, it's 18. Yeah. And so the fact that they would make it so that, 14 and the 10 year age gap yeah. seems wild yeah their thought um i can't think of his first name but it's senator wiener who put this through and i think it was a quote from him where he was trying to justify why they were doing it and it was to help protect minority groups in the lgbt spectrum because it was somehow disproportionately affecting them and so he thought that this would he the what he used was if a 17 year old and a 19 year old have consensual sex yeah that's that's considered statutory rape in the yes, state of california yes yeah. which that is different than a 14 year old and a 24 year old yeah but it but now it's all there. into the same umbrella agree with you there well yeah and that's why i guess that idea that is less up to a judge's discretion mm -hmm. right so then maybe a 14 and a 24 year old wasn't considered okay by the judge it's up to the judge's discretion but maybe a 14 year old and an 18 year old i mean oh and it was for one i should also include this it was if it only occurred if there was like only one occurrence of it yeah. so if you did it one time but it, then I would imagine if you did it more than once, then it's, yeah. it's I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, that brings to light a lot of things that are circumstantial and mm -hmm. are up to discretion of a judge. And, you know, I, yeah, there, especially as a high school teacher, I know that like there are a lot of high schoolers that, yeah, maybe a 16 year old and an 18 year old are in a relationship and both parents are consensual of it and know about it and are aware of it, but like still by the state standard, that might be considered a crime, mm -hmm. you know? And so I, th I think that, I mean, both ways it kind of, again, here I'll say it again, it becomes a slippery slope, you know, knowing that, yeah, if it's only a two-year age difference between like 16 and 18, as opposed to, yeah, 14 to 24-year-old. It's a hard might, line, right? you know, get very different, so. Because 14 and 24 is wrong across the board. Yeah. But 17 and 18, it's like, okay, well, and then yeah. 16 and 19, it's like, yeah, no, and then it just... It's like, where do you... Well, and that brings up a lot of other, you know, ways that we interpret things about rape and sexual assault as well. I mean, if, you know, the the younger party said it was non-consensual and we don't take that seriously, then that's messed up, obviously. And we need to listen to survivors and we need to listen to people that are saying, hey, this relationship was not non-consensual. I feel uncomfortable. This was sexual assault. Yeah, we need to listen to that. We need to take that in consideration and we need to convict those people and yeah, make them sex offenders if they are committing crimes that are non-consensual mm -hmm. against minors especially. But, you know- Even if in, it is consensual though. In situations where it is consensual and, you know, there is, uh, you know, less of an age gap like that and it is, you know, what, a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old and a 22-year-old- whatever, you know, and it's more uh, slippery slope, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
but I mean, we need to listen to survivors. We need to listen to people if they're saying they're being sexually assaulted or raped. And that that's the bottom line. That is what should be believed. And that is, you know, should be what is most important when talking about these laws. Mm-hmm. So. But yeah, going back to what we were talking about, like, I would imagine that, you know, you want to believe that your senators are smart people and that they know what they're doing and that they have, you know, the people's best interests. But at the end of the day, they're they're people and they're fallible yeah. just like us and judges are fallible and, just like and us. Again, and again, they have their own biases. They have their own agendas. They have... Yeah, who knows who's you know, funding them own, and what yeah. what they're trying to achieve. And, exactly. But that's what I was... That's where I was trying to go with that is like you just... You know, you just don't know. Even if you are highly educated, sometimes it's people who are highly educated who really believe that they know what is right yeah. and that this is where we have to go and this is what we have to do and then sometimes it's just way off of the general consensus yeah but then if you have people that aren't educated you could run into even worse problems so where do you go with that i mean i i think obviously as a teacher it's important to have a robust public education system where people are getting an education i think obviously something that's has been on the table for this election and, you know, especially if more progressives are elected into office, um, looking at making higher education more affordable and or free and, like, working with students on student debt and things like that. I mean, I think being able to, like, push the ability and the right to be able to get an education even past high school is so essential because there is – you know, so much out there and information that we need to navigate. Also, you know, the the parameters for having jobs is going up. You know, you want somebody, I want you to have a four-year degree and this much experience and everything like that. So, I mean, being able to, like, elevate our society by getting everybody an ac- access to a public education, uh, even public higher education, is so important. I mean, if especially if we're going to navigate you know, everything that's going on and navigate these news sources and being able to, you know, be trusting of our elected officials and, you know, being able to have a public check on these elected officials requires some level of education. And that's a society's duty is to educate their populace. So it's weird that there's pushback for that point. You would think that as a society, we all benefit from people being educated. The more educated people we have. Maybe. But it's really easy to control ignorant people. That's the point, right? <laughs> so. Man, imagine if everyone could go to college they wanted yeah. to. Imagine where that could take us. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think of the curriculum that you teach? Because history is weird in that some people feel like we don't delve into enough depth for certain topics. I mean, California is definitely more progressive than other states, obviously, Mm -hmm. on, you know, at least the freedom that teachers get and the standards that they should hit. Um, There's definitely been a lot of public talk lately and a lot of pushback, um, especially with like the Black Lives Matter movement and talking about systematic racism and various different projects. Like the New York Times came out with that 1619 project, which is all about the idea that we should start looking at U.S. history from the year 1619, which is when the first slaves came to the United States, and kind of looking at how slavery has molded the way that the United States developed and looking at how basically the United States was developed on these systems of slavery and systematic racism. And being able to teach things like that in school is, you know, in California, we're definitely more progressive and we're more accepting of talking about these issues and addressing them and 
you know, proposing anti-racist curriculum. But in a lot of other states, like I, I saw, oh God, I think he was from Missouri maybe, but like they were talking about it on the floor of the Senate and he was like, the 1619 curriculum should not be considered. It should not be part of our curriculum. It should not be taught, you know? Well, it's not backed, right? There are a lot of prominent historians who say that there's just no, there's no basis for it, that a lot of what they're saying is just radical activism that they're I just mean, trying to push a narrative it's pretty historical fact that this country was built on the back of slaves i mean yeah, that's... but every country every nation has been built on the back of slavery not necessarily the slavery that we think of where it's you know white and black but s slavery is not a unique invention no and it's been going on long before but, america but, was around yeah but in the modern sense, and especially in, like, Eurocentric history where, like, you know, we're focusing on European populations, like, you know, Europeans coming to the United States and establishing colonies, the Spaniards coming to South America and establishing colonies, etc. Those, those countries were built on the backs of slavery of people that were taken from their homes in Africa and told that they had to work here to make us rich is that what the 1619 brought I, I, yeah, i'll be honest i don't know yeah that's like basically the basis of it that like you should start looking at u.s history in 1619 when the first slaves were bought there and you should look at u.s history through the lens of black and slave experience for to what extent what is that what? to better understand i mean the modern society that we live in today and how you know you, you can't look at it from a you can't look at U.S. history today without understanding that it was built on the back of slaves. Like, you you can't mm -hmm. because that informs everything that we face today. And, you know, it informs laws about housing. And you can look at the South all the way from the 1920s up till the Civil Rights Movement and look at how that affected law there, looking at segregation laws, looking at how, um, you know, society was not integrated, especially in the South at that point. And... You know, looking at in a society today where people of a non-white race might not be treated as equitably as white people are, you need to understand where that came from and being able to look at it from a lens of, you know, understanding systematic racism and understanding slavery of not only African Americans, but indigenous people and of uh, Mexican Americans throughout U.S. history is essential to understanding. I mean where we are today and how we got here so so the 1619 project wants to just push back the scope a little bit more yeah to 1619 i mean and just basically to to take in other voices too mm -hmm. because i mean oftentimes like a lot of us were taught a u.s history that is like oh yay the colonists came here and they made friends with the native americans and they taught them how to grow corn and we had thanksgiving and then there was a revolution like that's pretty much what you get mm-hmm but understanding like there was this plantation system and there were slaves working and they drove the economy and we killed thousands of Native Americans and brought disease and we pitted tribes against each other and fought, you know, helped them fight and exterminate entire tribes. And so like, you know, just taking these different elements and realizing that like, you know, we're not always the heroes of the story mm -hmm. and, and knowing that like history is told by the winners and. Well, that's true for history of everything of everything yeah. right yeah and so i mean being able to take in these multiple perspectives and these different viewpoints and look at everybody's history rather than just like our history 
I say our as in the sense of, yeah, like I am descended from people that came to Virginia in the 1720s. So, you know, like understanding what took place and understanding that, you know, that this country was built on the struggles of many different people and the subjugation of many different people. Do you feel like you have some responsibility in some sense, like activist sense, because of that? Or do you? I don't know. I mean, I just think it's important to present a comprehensive view of history mm-hmm. to people, mm-hmm. you know, just just so that you're you're getting multiple sides of things and you're understanding what what really happened. Well, I think we can all agree we definitely don't cover enough of yeah. history. Period. But the, with the 1619 project, and I know absolutely nothing about them. I only know that there are a lot of people who say it's complete bullshit I mean, and there are a lot and of people there's that historians that say even to the very respected historians that say it doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily take into account all all viewpoints too right because mm-hmm. it's focused really from looking at the viewpoint of the black experience coming to the united states right and so you know taking that as one facet and bringing in other resources as well i think really creates more of a comprehensive look rather than just like we're using this and 1619 that's it you know being able to take in all of these different curriculums and different comprehensive um you know viewpoints is what's essential so what so how (laughs) what is the extent of your curriculum if you don't mind me asking like how deep do you do you try to go back farther or do you make an emphasis to try to cover more I mean, from so, that perspective, yeah. So really, I mean, they've honestly, like, for high school U.S. history, they're like, you remember enough from eighth grade. We're starting at the Civil War, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, wow. it, it's yeah. And you, you know, you cover like the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and then you kind of jump. But what I always start off, I've always, I always start the year off with this one article that I just love um, by this this woman, Angela Condever Wilson, and it's called Educating America. Uh, the historian's responsibility to Native Americans. And it's really all about why Native American history isn't often included in this early U.S. history because of the way that Native Americans kept their history, because Native Americans uh, traditionally and culturally have kept history through oral history by telling stories and having designated people within their tribes that are storytellers and, you know, are gifted in the art of remembering these stories, practicing them, and telling them and passing them down to different generations. That's how Native Americans kept history. And oftentimes, too, their spirit, their histories are more spiritual. They're less uh, concerned about dates and places like U.S. history is. It's not as chronological. It's more, you know, the creation stories that we hear and the stories of events that are passed down. And, you know, academic historians don't necessarily accept those histories because they aren't written down. Mm -hmm. And so kind of trying to, you know, create a history when you're not incorporating that oral history and that really important storytelling of tribes kind of – it doesn't create a full view of history and it creates this very, I'll I'll use the word again, Eurocentric, white European centric history about our experience with Native Americans, not their experience with us. Mm -hmm. And so I always start my U.S. history class off every year with that article because A, it's really important for talking about, you know, what sources do we consider valid? How do we deal with evidence? How do we deal with sources? But it also really addresses why, you know, we don't necessarily talk about the Native American experience that much and why Native American history isn't studied as often. And it's often because academic historians don't accept this oral history and don't necessarily, you know, 
accept these stories because they're more spiritual and they're less chronological and they're not as, you know, fact date place as, you know, U.S. history usually is. And so it's a really interesting creation of of history because it doesn't necessarily take into account that experience. So how do we create a story that takes into account these experiences and talks about Native American experience if it's not a history that we accept traditionally? So it's about kind of like bridging that gap and being understanding of different cultures and how, you know, we interpret that culture and letting that culture be part of our history as well. Mm-hmm. So, Well, then how do you fit that into a year or a semester? How do you teach everything that you know, should be taught or everything that should have emphasis put on it. How do you yeah. fit all that and do? It's hard. Year? I mean, it's hard. And you just kind of have to, you know, think. I try to like for at least every major thing that you study, you know, to kind of take one of those minority viewpoints and be like, well, you know, this is the history that is in the curriculum and that we're normally taught. But also like, let's look at this experience and see how it lines up with this. And, you know, that's really the part about working with sources is to be able to say, this person said this, this person said this, let's bridge these together and look how we can make a whole comprehensive story. And that's a lot of what history is. Mm-hmm. So academic history, at least like historians writing history. What is accepted. Yeah. yeah. So. Wow. That's interesting. I didn't know that they kind of rejected the Native American story in that sense. Because you do kind of, I mean, I, I took like a U.S. history course and a world history course. And I felt mm-hmm. like that kind of helped having like the global sense of what it is, you know what I mean? But you don't really get into too much depth with any of it, even with predominantly white viewpoints. You don't, there's not a whole lot of depth. It's more, okay, this is this period. This is this period. This is this period. Then you're you're done. done. That's it. Yeah. Let's look at this war and this war. And then, yeah. A couple major, major battles, a couple incidents like the trail of tears, like, name things that everybody yeah knows. and i mean like in my world history class i really always try to include like uh one of my favorite topics to talk about is like the haitian revolution in the country of haiti uh when they overthrew the french government it was the first like really what was considered a successful slave rebellion because the majority of the population of haiti were african slaves um underneath french rule and so i think that's always a really important event to look at to like look how you know all of these ideas about self-government and things that were floating around at the time um in the early 1800s after like the french revolution played out in like different countries that aren't like those major world powers that we think about and looking at different latin american revolutions and stuff as well like it's really important to look at how these big ideas that we have about self-government and like democracy and stuff played out in different countries rather than just like, yeah, the U S and Britain and France Mm -hmm. and looking at how it, you know, enacted in smaller countries that we don't often think about like Haiti and Colombia and Venezuela, you know? So do they, it would almost be interesting if they just broke up more sections, right? So you could have a native American history course. Yeah. Well, when you get to college, you can have that, but you you, you know, you got to really kind of care about it at that point and And want to learn about it. So, and of the people that don't go to college, how many are getting that they're not. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just don't know. And then you start making mistakes that happened a long time ago. Right. Exactly. Now we're yeah back to that comes full circle. There you go. So yeah. My, I, I do not know a lot about the California education system, but I, I've heard inklings that activism is strongly tied to the public education sector. Yeah. I mean, I don't know in some ways. I mean, 
depending there's there's certain standards of different grade levels like in fourth grade you probably remember you do your native american report and you build your your little mission out of styrofoam yes. you know and so wow, I haven't thought those about that are kind of like time. you know they bring it in early those are the multiple viewpoints because you do you know, a report on Native Americans, you learn about Native American culture, and then you mm-hmm. also learn about how, you know, the Spanish came in and they set up the mission system and what that looked like as well, you know. So looking at two things that were kind of happening simultaneously and how it affected both groups, because um, that's pretty central to education system in California. But, I mean, the the statewide standards that they, like, brought in for California, they kind of redid the framework a couple of years ago. And it's just... It, it's a lot more fluid. It's a lot more like learning skills about studying history and just learning how your community affects you and how you affect your global community. And it's kind of all really comes down to the idea of like being a good global citizen and like learning that you're going to be part of this society one day. What do you need to learn to be part of this society? You know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really one of the most important things in education anyway is like how do you and especially in history and government education like how do you become an informed person that can be a a useful part of society and understand your government and understand what's going on around you and so i think that i mean when it comes down to it is really the most important part of getting an education is becoming a productive member of your society so. Do you think that's why a lot of these kids that come out of college are more left-leaning is because they get, I don't want to say indoctrinated, but they get kind of morphed with more global ideals in that sense of how do you, what is your part as a piece of this greater populace? Like what, do you, what is your part in the world around you? What are you doing? How are you helping? How are you making a difference? How are you supporting people? I mean, I think this country just like needs to get away from that whole left and right thing. God, it would be amazing if we could, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, and because a lot of, we're like pretty much like one of the last countries that like has that really diehard, like you're this or you're that. And, and it's really not that way anymore. And as we've seen, especially like through the last election cycle with all, you know, even on the Democratic Party side, like the the spectrum of people, like there are a lot of people that were like diehard Bernie supporters and would be considered a lot further left leaning that are really not supportive of Joe Biden, Mm -hmm. even though he is a Democrat, but he is definitely a more centrist Democrat. And that's why you have, you know, people like John Kasich and like other Republicans that are more centrist leaning coming over from this side to support him when Trump is way more far right than they are, you know? And so you're kind of seeing that this spectrum that's supposed to just be left and right, I'm doing hand gestures here and people who are listening can't obviously see them, but you know, it's, it's just, it's not, it's not left and right. It's not black and white. There's, there's people along this whole spectrum that have very different beliefs and fall into very different places that it just kind of, it just on, on a general level sucks to be put in that box of just like, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, and that's how it is, you know? So that's like a whole total redoing of, of a system and having to kind of rethink the way that we, we operate and the way our government functions. But yeah, third parties have never been successful oh, no. in the United States. And, you know, probably never will be. And probably at this point, it looks like at least never will be. And, you know, we saw last election cycle, oh, there's going to be a fracture. The Democrats are going to split. The Republicans are going to split. 
but it still doesn't happen, you know, so. If ever there was a time where a third-party person could win, if people actually rallied behind her, it would be with Joe Jorgensen right now. And I don't even know any of her, any of her plans. I've heard that she's more moderate that she fits more in the middle than either of the candidates that we have but yeah you have people that hate trump vehemently and would rather have biden up there and then you have people that are like biden's not even there mentally how is he going to lead the country and would rather have trump and i think if a majority of people sat Wait, down they think biden's not there mentally but they think trump's there mentally interesting right? <laughs> no. well biden's definitely slipping Biden's too, well yeah, yeah. Trump's definitely Trump I wouldn't be surprised if Trump's hopped up on something and they just got him going yeah but the left right thing is weird and it's really weird because most people if you actually sat down and talked with them would fall more in the middle but yeah. then you have these fringe groups that are dangerous well and there are people that are like so one issue too like there are people that probably you would consider a democrat but they're so like pro-life yeah that they will always vote for a republican you're that much about one one single issue that you can't you know take the whole you know global spectrum into into your mind and honestly like yeah the two-party thing was never really like the way that I feel like, you know, the founding fathers intended, if you read really powerful speech, always recommend it to everybody, George Washington's farewell address, he like, he, he specifically says like, avoid infighting of, of, of our government, avoid having two sides oppose each other, basically, is what he said. He warned against this two-party system, and he knew it was going to happen because people like, you know, in his early cabinet, Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson, I'm a huge Hamilton fan, so get to that but uh you know fighting against each other and just totally disagreeing about things about you know especially that federal versus state power which exists all the way back to you know the, the foundation of our government and george washington warned against it and you know after he went out of office it immediately took hold and you know you can look at through history after that that there was pretty much always two main parties that were in control whether they you know some of them went out of fashion and other ones came up but still there's always been two parties and it's just there's there's more than two sides to to the way that our government works i'd like to think that it's more complex than just democrat so, right? and republican but well yeah. and how sad is it how much power these two sides have that they can just be like these are your options and there's nothing else like this. is You're going to take what we're going to give you and you're either going to vote for us or you're going to vote for the enemy. Well, and the unwillingness to work to, with each other, too, especially now, like since Trump has been elected, I don't think like the amount of stuff that has been done by Congress in the last four years is very minimal. Very minimal. Like, yeah, sweeping legislation has not happened. Like positive change in our country has not happened. It has maintained... You know, like not much has changed. Mm -hmm. And if not, it has gotten more repressive. So it's just, you know, what are we going to do? And neither side is really willing to give anything up or compromise on it. So, well, they can't. I mean, it's so polarized. And they can't because it's so polarized. Exactly. Yeah. It's like we cannot give up our moral beliefs. To, yeah, we can't to, work with, to work with the Republicans this, or work know, with the or, Democrats. Yeah. And so it's just. It's so polarizing. And I, I think it creates a lot of hatred among the populace, too. And. Yeah, you know, I if I go drive through McKinleyville and go to some yard sales like I did last weekend and I see a Trump flag, I'm just like immediately angry and 
you know, like so turned off and don't want to go back to McKinleyville ever again. But it's like, come on, like, yeah, somebody has a political belief. You can't let it get to you like that, you know, and just like being able to like hope that somebody can come to a consensus and work together. But it's just like, and especially again, back to social media, like the number of times I get so angry when I like look at the comments on a Lost Coast Outpost article <laughs> or something like that. It's like, oh my God, why does everybody have to argue about everything? And why does it always have to be this like big grand political fight? And it's, it's so, yeah. Well, and why can't we just agree to disagree on some things? Why can't you have your beliefs? I'll have mine. It doesn't mean that we hate each other. Yeah. But we just... Well, and, believe different things. and it comes down to, to to things that are like, yeah, beliefs. And then it also comes down to things that are like, oh, cool. You're fundamentally infringing on people's rights. Well, there's a line, right? You know, as there's long... a line where it's like, okay, we can disagree about how we should use economic funds for this. But if you think that, you know, black people shouldn't have rights or gay people can't get married, then, you know, I'm, I'm not really feeling that you're seeing equality in the same way that I am, you know, or yeah. you're seeing the first amendment in the same way that I am. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, there definitely, it definitely hits a wall, but where the wall is and where people treat it like it should be are completely different. Yeah. Cause you could be like, if you say you're a conservative, right. And you believe pro-life that for some people, that's the end of your friendship. If you were friends with somebody and they believe that, that's the end. Like, that's just, that's, I'm sorry, I can't associate with you because of what you believe. Yeah. Right? But as long as they, I mean, if they're not, like, actively forcing you to try to keep a child or if they're not doing. Yeah, you're not feeling it as much, you know? Yeah. As yeah. long as, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like people are so attached to their ideas and everyone wants to think that their idea is right regardless of whether it is or whether it's not, um, that it's, we're like losing our compassion to just people. Yeah. Like, but okay, when it comes to legislating it on a national scale, that's different, that's right? That's where the problem is. But then is. that's, like, they're infringing on somebody you know, else's I, rights. I can say, cool, it, it's cool if you don't want to get an abortion. And if you think it's cool that I do want to get one, then great. You know, but if you're directly, you know, attacking my right and saying that we need to legislate against it and, you know, you don't have the right to choose, then mm -hmm. maybe we'll have a problem. But if you say, I don't personally want to do that, but I don't care what you do, I'm I'm probably more likely to be like, okay, cool, we're cool. But if you're, you know, saying, no way, that's ridiculous. Why would you, you know, it, it, uh, those are what creates that's those more problems is. and those tensions between people too. That's what gets it even more on like you know, this direct person-to-person -person basis where we're, you know, arguing and having fights with people all around us and people within our families and everything like that, so. Well, everybody's fighting, but nobody is listening. Yeah. Nobody's understanding each other. Yeah. It's all, especially if you've got people in your family that um, are on either side of the political spectrum, but there's no talking. You can't yeah. even talk to them, let alone if you guys are even in contact. Like, oh, that yeah. is a wedge that will tear people apart. Oh, yeah. I have a cousin. None of us are allowed to talk to him anymore about politics. We just don't talk about politics. We know that we're not going to talk to him about politics. And that's... Which is so... That's I what think it that's is. so we sad. We just can't. And it's like... I don't know. Especially it's... Yeah. I don't know. My... 
on, on that one side of my family, the majority of my family is from Tennessee. They're from the South. And so I do have a few cousins that are pretty, you know, staunch Trump supporters. And I have some cousins on that same side that are also like super liberal. And so like, you know, I'm pretty removed from it because I'm over here in California, but I watch them fighting with each other on Facebook. And I'm just like, oh gosh, like hand, hands off here, you yeah. guys, what's going on? You guys are, you live in the same area too. And so it's just very, I think more exacerbated too when it's like Especially you're living with in a red president. state. And yeah. And it's, yeah. Yep. He doesn't make it any easier to actually open dialogue between well, the two Well, he openly, you know, insults people and openly starts conflicts. And I mean, what can you expect from your populace if as a leader you're going to openly insult and fight with people and start conflicts so i think the biggest statement that can be said is that this is america right and i love i love our country i think we you know we have so much potential to do so much um but our options for president are trump or biden and i don't think i i mean our president should be the best of us not what what's Not at the bottom who, of the barrel who's coming next and who's put yeah. in their time and who's ready to i mean and that was like i don't know that's why i, I want to say i think it's almost funny but it, it's not funny because this, it's is, funny this, is, this, is, this is the fewest future of our country but you know after the 2016 election when it was like oh, it's Hillary's time we're going to elect Hillary and then there was not a lot of people behind her and she lost to elect a candidate like Biden who is kind of the same oh, it's Biden's time, he put in his time, we're behind him, it's just kind of like, okay, cool, <laughs> whatever, fine, you you think- It's ridiculous. You think this is the best that we can put up against Trump? Okay. You know, you, gotta, all the you gotta rally behind it, but, it's, you know, and I think choosing Kamala Harris as a, as a VP was a good call for him, you know, You think that was a good one? I, I think it's good enough, you know, oh. at least to have. Oh, man. I, I'm happy and supportive to see a strong woman of color on the national stage. Let's she... put it that way. But I, I know, especially as being from the state of California, that there are a lot of people that have problems with how she was, uh, you know, in the city of San Francisco, attorney general, things like that. Um, but, you know looking at her Senate record and how she voted and who she's aligned with in the Senate, it's important to look at those kind of things too and know that she's definitely has been on the right side since then and has been an activist and been. She worries me kind of, I I don't even know how I would put it, but she, she worries me because she, it seems like, she she's a strong independent woman which is great but it i'm worried at the portrayal that she's given that she has shown that she will go to certain lengths that may be excessive to get where she wants to go because she's got but would you say strong... would you say that yes. if she was a man yeah okay. i feel the same Just way making sure, no, yeah. I know a no, lot no, of people no. have flack with her because oh like, yeah no you know women with with drive to get to where no, they want to go why, that's why i wanted like, to preface it with you know. she's a strong independent yeah. woman and she knows where she wants to go and i would say the same thing i think i, mean, I don't want to compare her to trump because they're obviously two different people but the type of person who will i who will say things and do things 
to get where they feel they should be worries me. I mean, I see a lot of similarities with her in that sense to Obama, Mm -hmm. Um, just kind of as this like young, pretty junior senator politician who, you know, had done a lot of great things, but maybe not have received national attention for it. And then was kind of just, you know, brought onto our national stage, whether it was by the party or what, you know, and kind of pushed towards the top and just you know, publicly seen like, this is the person we're going to go with. She's great. We're going Mm -hmm. with her, with Obama, you know, like we're going with him, which, you know, they they have great leadership potential and they've, you know, proven that, but I don't necessarily know where I'm going with this, but, you know, it might not have been exactly the natural natural choice. Like they might Mm -hmm. not have risen to that prominence if it wasn't for that extra push or... Well, she's made some dangerous moves though. And I'm worried that a lot of people... I feel like with with gender and race now, because there obviously are big issues, that we are putting a lot of weight on, oh, this person should go where we think they should go because of those things. Well, no, we should have a candidate who it doesn't matter if they're a woman or a man or this race or that race or identify this way. We sh- They should be in this position because they're the best person for the job, which I don't think any of them are across the board. But yeah. she, what she... You know, what she did as DA and withholding evidence and what really put a kind of a sour taste in my mouth was when during the debates and she was talking to Biden and stuff and said that, you know, basically said he sexually assaulted these women. But it was a debate. She, I know. And people say that. No, people definitely <laughs> well, say said. that. She yeah, said that. that was my problem. Yeah. Either you believe. And it's all politicking. I mean, but that that's is so what it is. sad is yeah. that that's what. I mean, there were there were choices. There were a couple obvious choices that Biden could have made. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was obviously one of them for VP. Uh, Stacey Abrams was like another obvious one that I like really thought he was going to go with her. But, I heard a lot of people think that. Uh, I thought he was going to go more that he, way. I know picking somebody from California. What like we're going blue anyway. Why would you pick somebody it's, from California? I... But you know, I mean, they're they're. It's the choice he, they made, and mm-hmm. I say they has meaning that probably somebody else besides oh, Biden yeah. chose her, obviously. But it's what we're going for, and you know, if you want to get Trump out of office, you got to be behind the Biden Harris ticket. You gotta that's go for the, it. That's so. <laughs> the one point of view that is across the board. Is I've never heard anybody say, "Oh, I'm voting for Biden." Oh no, Kamala. I'm voting to get Trump out of office. That's what everybody is. Yeah. If you're voting for Biden. It's because you don't want Trump in office. I haven't heard anybody say, oh, I'm voting for Biden yeah. and them no, because was, of this plan. Or yeah, I was one. a huge Bernie supporter. I supported Bernie in 2016. I supported Bernie all through these primaries. Um, but alas, you know, he he has backed Biden now. He is in support of Biden and Harris. And so, you know, the DNC did not want Bernie. They were going to do whatever was yeah. necessary to get Bernie out of there. Yeah. And Bernie's, I mean, you know, he's always been an independent and mm. he didn't really, you know, become part of the DNC and become, you know, a, a Democrat per se until the 2016 election, really. And so, but I think his movement is obviously very important in looking at, you know, how there are a lot of people on the left that want to move towards a more progressive platform and are more concerned about social issues and 
you know, the state of workers in this nation and, you know, worrying about the minimum wage and worrying about student debt and worrying about health care for all and really seeing how that's affecting our country and how we're not really keeping up with other nations in the world either. Like, we are one of the few, like, you know, considered, like, civilized countries that doesn't have, like, a national health care system. And, you know, I think that's obviously proving itself about how our system is not very effective, like, through this pandemic and seeing how you know, the amount of medical debt that people have and what's going on. And so, you know, as these ideas, you know, maybe Bernie's not the candidate this year or ever because he's getting (laughs) old up there. But, you know, at least these ideas are now on the national stage. And at least there are a lot of people pressuring, especially Democratic leadership, to move that direction. So do you think Biden's going to going to win come November? Uh, Oh, man, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. Um, I think if he does win, it's not going to be a, a peaceful win. Oh, absolutely not. So and yeah. as we said before, you know, if either way, uh, yeah, there's, gonna there's the going to be, it's going to be a hard time to get through. Let's just say, yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And it's coming up fast. It's yeah. a month and a half away or so, so. Which is crazy. And they said we might not find out who actually wins for like 10 days. Oh, yeah. Which that is going to be a chaotic Especially, you know, with, uh, as we were talking about earlier, the number of vote by mail people just making sure all those ballots do get in and they do get counted, especially in the swing states like Ohio and Florida and Pennsylvania and things like that. So making sure that, you know, everybody's vote gets counted. Everybody has a voice. And that's what's the most important part about living in a democracy. I don't know anything about the stats for mail-in voting. I've heard it's really low. But I had a friend who she was on like a rotary thing and a bunch of them were on rotary going to school in another country and they voted by mail for some local election, I think. And their votes weren't counted. They weren't, they didn't even have record that they voted. Yeah. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, a danger, I'm a voting person. You, know, you are. Especially up here. I'm not that scared to go throw on some hand sanity in my mask and mm-hmm. go in there and vote. But I mean, it's definitely they've they've shut down a lot of polling places, which, you know, if they're not going to be allowing mass voter mail in is obviously voter suppression. So like this idea that, you know, either you can vote by mail and hope that is safe and that is the best way to vote or you can stand in line for 10 hours at your polling place. I think they just need to give people the option. Yeah. If you want to go vote in person, you should be able to, if you feel more comfortable voting by mail, you should be able to do that. But I mean, it's hard too, because like, especially, you know, the majority of poll workers are senior citizens. They're people that are retired. And those are the people that should not be like, you know, handing you paper all day in direct contact with the public, you know? With small writing. Well, I mean, not not even that. I'm just talking about the virus, you know? Like, those are the people that are working. They don't want to be in the direct contact with the public all day, uh, you know, in the face of of COVID. So it's like, that's why a lot of these polling places have been closed down because they're having, there's not as many people that want to be poll workers or that feel safe being poll workers right now. And so. It's crazy. Yeah. So what do you want to do if you win? What do I want to do if I What do you want to do when you, if you get into office, what's like, what's your game plan? I mean, I think that Arcata just needs to hear some younger voices in their government for sure. Um, There's definitely a big disconnect, I feel like, between the HSU community and what's going on in the Arcata city government. Meaning what? Just uh, meaning that students really aren't incorporated into the community very much. Like they are kind of 
ostracized. They're up on campus and they're not really considered part of the community, mm-hmm. even though Arcata is a college town. Yeah. Um, a lot of people that I've been talking to, I mean, kind of just the issues that are most important to a lot of people that I've talked to are kind of looking at the plaza and the plaza space and kind of revitalizing that as a community space, possibly making it just more pedestrian friendly, especially in the the wake of COVID too, having more outdoor dining, outdoor retail sales being able to happen, uh, which might look like, you know, maybe sh- uh, experimenting with shutting down uh, lanes of the plaza during farmer's market, things like that, um, to have like a more pedestrian friendly presence. Um just working on getting uh, climate change as as a forefront in Arcata, especially um, transportation has been a huge thing that I've been talking to people about. Uh, 50%, 54% of emissions from the city of Arcata are caused by personal vehicles. And so kind of just looking at that movement towards Arcata being more pedestrian friendly, more bike friendly, and kind of revamping the public transportation system within Arcata and how that connects to the entire county transit system um, is kind of an idea that a lot of people have been talking about and pushing for. And yeah, I mean, I think that's what's important to a lot of people. And then definitely in this unique time, just kind of jumpstarting local business and being able to get local businesses back on their feet after this pandemic and after, you know, all the restrictions that have been put in place and kind of moving towards being able to have a lot of businesses reopen, what that looks like safely. And, you know, again, pushing that idea of, yeah, being able to give businesses the option to expand outward and have outdoor dining space and being able to give, um, you know, the businesses the option to apply for those small business grants that are coming in kind of from the government and that local businesses and local banks kind of are having the control of passing those funds out and making sure that a lot of these businesses are getting back on their feet because that's really, I mean, what drives the economy here locally is these these small businesses being able to, you know, function to their best potential. So Yeah, without these small businesses, especially for Arcata and the plaza right there, it would be incredibly challenging to get anything going. Yeah. And so, I mean, and and there's going to be some unique opportunities too um, with definitely, you know, Toby and Jackson sidelines on the plaza, you know, they're done for. for, um, And so, you know, what are those spaces going to be? What kind of businesses are going to go into the plaza? Talking to people a lot about, you know, maybe seeing more of a civic presence on the plaza, whether that be in the way of like a, you know, a tourism business center or a local museum, something like that on the plaza. Um, and definitely also like leaning into, as we've, we've seen even during the pandemic, cause a lot of people are not traveling out of state. They're not traveling out of the country. And so we're seeing almost an influx in tourism here locally. You've seen, you know, RVs driving up and down the 101 and coast and stuff. And, you know, kind of that wave of supporting tourism coming to Humboldt County is going to really be what jumpstarts Humboldt's economy, especially after legalization and, you know, that, that black market money from marijuana is not really what's funding Humboldt County anymore because, it's, it's all legalized. And so, you know, being able to lean into local tourism, maybe being welcoming to this kind of cannabis tourism that's starting to take off and working on kind of new and creative ideas to make sure that, you know, the humbled economy doesn't just die out and Arcata just comes one of those, you know, ghost forestry fishering fisherman towns on the coast that kind of litter the 101. So mm-hmm. when you say it's interesting that you said you want to make hsu more of the community because i always thought that you know the community was built around hsu like i thought it was already yeah really integrated but i don't know the, the, i went to hsu for a year and that year that i went to hsu i really felt like 
I wouldn't have had anything to do with Arcata if I if I wasn't from here, you know? Oh, really? And I feel like I, I talk to a lot of students that feel like, yeah, I mostly stick up on campus. I mostly just have friends from, from HSU. I don't really go into town much. I don't really know what's going on there, you know? And so making sure that there are events that are welcoming to HSU students, making sure that there are partnerships between local businesses and local, you know, nonprofits and stuff, bringing in those students and bringing in their talents and gifts into our community and just kind of making it a mutually beneficial relationship. Because I know, especially in the wake of, of COVID and, you know, kind of the overchanging between different presidents and stuff, HSU is hurting too. And if HSU is not as successful and kind of, or if it ever even, you know, ceases to exist here, that's going to hurt Arcata's economy so badly and be so detrimental to the economy. So just kind of trying to make sure that, you know, it's symbiotic that HSU is working with Arcata, Arcata is working with HSU to kind of make it the the best, most successful situation possible. So more productive relationship. Yeah. yeah HSU was struggling before COVID happened. Yeah. It'll be really yeah. interesting to see what happens afterwards. Yeah, well, and they were they were cutting programs and they were ready, you know, to add the nursing program back in and kind of try to build up some other programs. And then, you know, COVID hit. So it's just especially now that the majority of students are online and a lot less students, especially incoming freshmen and stuff, are kind of opting more to not spend their money on going to a four year and go to community college instead. And so, I mean, there's less people coming in. So hopefully, you know, we can keep student population up and you know, in, increase that enrollment. So yeah, because a lot of people that go to HSU are from out of the area, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, and I know this like last year there was a major effort to keep students like uh, local right? local students going there. There was a lot of grant money offered and scholarships that they were going to give local students to attend HSU. And I know a lot of the local high schools because we did it. And, you know, had admission days where HSU would come and, you know, go over your transcripts and automatically admit you and say, you know, without having to go through that applica application process and be able to like, especially with local students, be like, oh, you're in, come to our school, please, we'll give you money. So, you know, and honestly, like I loved going to HSU and probably if I didn't uh, grow up in Humboldt, I would have maybe thought about going here for my, my four year and stuff too, but. You it's know. a beautiful campus. Oh, yeah. It's got a it's lot awesome. of hills, though. Hills and Stairs University, so nice. yeah. HSU. Oh, man. <laughs> so would you be the youngest person on the council if you win? Currently, yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you feel like that carries any weight? I don't think it should matter. I mean, I think as long as you have ideas and you are listening to people and I mean, especially with city council, like it is technically, you know, it is considered a nonpartisan office. Like you are listening to the needs of your constituents. You're listening to the needs of the city and you are responding to those needs. You know, mm -hmm. you, you shouldn't be playing politics. You should just be directly listening to what will make the city a better place. Is and that I think, how it works though currently? Uh, yeah, I would hope so. I think I think a little to some extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, and Arcata in general is pretty left, a liberal city, yeah. and you know is pretty progressive about things like climate change and transportation and the environment and everything like that. So I think that Arcata, you know, is is listening to the needs of its constituents, but there there's definitely I don't know less of an action, you know, in. I just feel like, I don't know, I grew up in Arcata and I felt like as a child, there was like a lot of community things that we used to do and like places I would go and like see other people and, you know, go hang out on the plaza and go climb trees and do all this stuff. And I feel like, you know, especially that, that doesn't exist as much anymore. And especially to like a lot of people, if you ask them like, 
you know, what, what do you think needs to change in Arcata? They're like, oh, you, you got to clean up the plaza. You got to get, you know, these transients off the plaza, these homeless people off the plaza. And that's a huge issue in Arcata and across homeless, homeless county, Humboldt County. <laughs> is you could call deal, it homeless county. It's to deal with, I mean, this homeless population. And I know Eureka is doing a lot of great work. Betty Chin um, does a lot of really important work in getting houseless people off the streets and trying to find them housing. But in Arcata too, I mean, there's just a lot of barriers to even finding housing because there's not enough affordable housing in general to be able to house people that are on fixed incomes or don't necessarily have a job yet or Mm -hmm. are just, you know, like getting clean from drugs and things like that. And there's a lot of barriers to getting into housing. And so, I mean, I think just by creating affordable housing and that that's currently one of the the measures that's on the ballot, um, the selection cycle, I think it's measure B in Arcata. There's, there's a cap on the amount of affordable housing that can exist in Arcata that was, like, created back in the 1990s, and it's, uh, like, 5% of the housing is dedicated to affordable housing, and Arcata is, like, reaching that cap right now. Mm-hmm. And so that's what Measure B is all about, is about increasing that cap to be able to create more affordable housing in Arcata, create more subsidized housing for these populations that, you know, are on fixed incomes, that are low income, et cetera, and being able to get them into housing to get them, you know, stable and to be able to get jobs and be able to provide for themselves. Because that's really, you know, the first step in, you know, moving yourself forward is to being ha- have a stable place to call home and to be able to live and have a roof over your head. So is I that think- the major issue though, is affordable house? Cause you hear, I mean, do they want to have a house or is this more like a way of life? I guess. I mean, do they want to be, cause I've, I've tried to talk to a number of different people about this, but nobody seems to really have an idea of what well, it and is. That's that like the really key, the problem key, key part is like a lot of people they don't, know that and Mm -hmm. it's like yeah you have to talk to this population you have to get an idea of what their needs are and what services that they need to be able to you know get back on their feet and you know i know um was talking uh in a meeting with the police chief the other day of arcada that like a lot of people yeah are just there in like a transient state and are trying to get home but they don't have enough money for a bus ticket they don't have a hotel to stay when they get home they don't have you know anything like that and so you know, working with different departments within the city to get these people, you know, the funds that they need to get a bus voucher, to get a hotel voucher, to get, you know, out of town and to get where they want to go also. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know Arcata House Partnership is doing a lot of work to, you know, house people temporarily while they find housing. Um, But Arcata just kind of lacks a robust shelter system, really. They don't necessarily have access to the resources, whether it be mental health, whether it be, you know, uh, help with drug addiction and anything like that. And so, you know, you got to build up these social services to be able to help these populations as well. So it's kind of a two pronged set. You got to be able to have the services that they need to, you know, get off drugs, get back on their feet, find a job, uh, get the mental health help they need, whatever their, you know, their barrier might be. And then also be able to have housing for them to get into because, I mean, housing is scarce. I know HSU students that have lived in their car that because they can't find a place that's affordable or they can't find, you know, roommates to go in on a place or they can't get a lease because they don't have a co-signer or they have a pet and they can't find a place either, even if it's a, you know, emotional support animal or something like that. So there's just so many barriers to finding housing and along with a lack of housing, it really creates an issue. So I think I heard somewhere that HSU has the some of the highest numbers of homeless students in the country. Yeah, they did a whole like vice spot on that. I remember there was a video a yes. couple of years ago that yeah. was, yeah. 
Did you notice that when you were there? You noticed a lot of homeless yeah. No, students? I re- I remember because I I had a I had an eight a.m. class. I remember, and so I would come in you know early and park, and like there would be like several vans that like looked like obviously people were living in them that were parked. You know, instead of getting housing or getting student housing, a lot of these people just pay for their parking permit and they live in their van and you know mm-hmm. or camper or whatever it might be, and and you you see them there and they're living. There are a lot of people that might be couch surfing or camping in the the woods. You know, if you go on a hike up in the community forest there, you'll you'll see several tents, you know, along the down the trails if you looked over the hills and stuff. So I mean, it's an issue and I, I think there there is some sort of like kind of community mindset about it in Humboldt where a lot it of people like do it, like right? to like, you know, live that alternative lifestyle, live that off the grid lifestyle, go live on somebody's property, go you know, talk, live in the forest, live in a tent, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, but also there's a lot of people that don't want to live that alternative lifestyle, but don't have the means to be able to get out of it, you know, so. Does HSU, they have on-campus housing, don't they? Yeah, HSU has on-campus housing. Um, but it's limited. But it's limited. It's limited. You know, you're, you're guaranteed it as a freshman and that's about it. Oh, wow. Not even a sophomore. So, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. So... It's pretty competitive. I mean, and there's been several projects like the the village project, which was ultimately shut down. They were trying to build more student housing um, off campus at, but near HSU. Um, and, you know, multiple iterations of this project were put out and ultimately it did get shut down by different city planning companies and things like that. So, you know, just trying to move towards being able to find areas that are dedicated towards housing um, there's a lot of talk about in, in Humboldt, they have different land trusts that like basically this land is dedicated to housing. Um, they have there's a program in Arcata called Housing Humboldt, uh, where like the Janes Creek subdivision, if you know where that is off of like across the freeway from HSU. Yes. Where, where the Spinney Park is, everybody talks about. Um, but over there, um, there's some houses there that are dedicated that they are to be sold to low income people. So the city owns the property, but the person owns the house. Right. And so any improvements that they make on the house are, uh, you know, go into the equity of the house. And then ultimately, you know, it's for first time home buyers, low income, first time home buyers. So once they sell the house, they will be able to have, um, you know, equity in that and be able to sell the house for for profit and be able to move up in you know their housing market so Mm -hmm. with low-income housing like that is it the city that puts up the funding for that or their state grants that they can get how does that play out it depends uh it, it, it depends but oftentimes yeah there are uh state grants and stuff that go towards funding building this housing and then usually uh either state or local governments will kind of manage the housing mm-hmm. um that's like what the the humble plaza housing the the red apartments over by murphy's and arcada um is subsidized housing like that and so they're dedicated for people that are either low income or fixed income um if they're on you know like food stamps wick things like that uh they have access to that housing too and get subsidies for living there so what is the what's the cap on rent then Ooh. for that do you happen to know that <sighs> i don't exactly know i think it's in like an uh, arcade i feel like it used to be like 795 or something something like that a month mm-hmm. um but do not quote me on that i'm not 100 mm-hmm. percent sure on that so yeah still that seems i mean how do how do how do you afford that if you're almost yeah. still even if you can get the place and you can get clean. It's just, it seems like there's it's no, yeah, it's a very, very hard topic. Yeah. The homeless problem in the whole state of California is just 
nobody nobody seems to either want to deal with it or it's too politicized to be able to get anything really done. Well, in California has like the one of the largest populations of homeless people out of like the entire U.S., whether that be, you know, towards our policy, towards dealing with homeless populations, but also like, you know, our climate. We have, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, one Southern of the, the nicest climates, you know, that you can live on the street year round and not necessarily be exposed to extreme cold. Um, and, you know, certain places, especially in the summer, you're not necessarily exposed to extreme heat either. So, you know, California offers a pretty amicable climate to that mm -hmm. too. So, And from my understanding, the ACLU has made it so that you can't really do a lot about the situation. Like you can't move them. Um, they're allowed to put up like squatters rights yeah. wherever they're at. Like, so then how do you, how do you start to, you know, how do you facilitate change? Yeah. If A, they don't want to change and B, you can't really make them change, which I I mean, that's yeah. just like a whole, that's a whole nother. It's hard game. to put yourself in, in that mindset if that's not like the life that mm -hmm. you're used to living. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of barriers and I think that one of the main problems in our country is mental health. Healthcare. Oh, absolutely. And so being able oh, yeah. to, you know, address mental health on the same level as like physical health and understand that like, yeah, it creates barriers for you to be able to do things and get a job and keep a job and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's a whole, you know, thing in and of, of itself about how we deal with that. And especially just, you know, I think younger generations are more open to talking about mental health and dealing with mental health and everything like that. But especially like older generations are kind of just nah, in denial about it. Let's so not talk about our sweep feelings. Sweep it under Let's the rug. Not, yeah. So. What is your stance on the police? The police. Okay. Yeah. Um, like you almost have to ask yeah. that question nowadays. No, of course cause... you do. And uh, I was talking about this the other day on the, the Young Democrats uh, little Zoom thing I did. But a lot of people especially older folks are really afraid of that phrase, like defund the police. They think that. Oh, means, are you, are you for that? They think that means that, well, we're going to get there. Oh, oh man, they, we they gotta think, do the build they, up. Well, they think that means that like, you're going to get rid of the police mm -hmm. and, and there's just no cops anymore. And like, you know, I'm a history teacher. I can talk to you all day long about like the inherent, you know, systematic racist ten underlyings of policing and the different historical contexts of that. But like when it comes down to it, especially in a small town like Arcata, you're not going to be able to get rid of the police force. That's just not going to, it's not going to happen. There's nobody that's in support of that. They also like serve a pretty, you know, community building aspect too. Um, especially like in Arcata, they have uh, like a program that APD operates that I really admire is the juvenile diversion program where they use, um, I'm a teacher, so I'm trained to what's like called restorative practices, which is like the idea that like you're not just going to suspend or expel a kid. You're going to figure out what's wrong. You're going to like build them up and build a contract with them and then bring them back into their community and like monitor them, right? And so that's like what the Juvenile Diversion Program does with the city of Arcata and with like the McKinleyville and Arcata High School is basically just like take kids that have maybe committed crimes or have, you know, big problems at school are going to get expelled, whatever, and kind of figure out what the, is the problem, create contracts with them, and kind of bring them back into society as opposed to, like, having them in juvenile hall and having them on parole and things like that and giving workshops to their families and helping them out and kind of bringing them back into the community and not, like, ostracizing them. And I think that's, like, so important. And APD does a lot of good work like that. And I think that, you know, also the Arcata Police Department doesn't need assault rifles and riot gear. You know, so there's there's parts that you can take away, but there's also parts that are integral to, you know, keeping 
you know, order and peace in Arcata. And so I think that, you know, providing certain essential services, making sure that, yeah, if somebody's having a mental health crisis, that you're not like sending a cop there necessarily. You might be sending a mental health crisis counselor from the Department of Health and Human Services, or you might be sending uh, a social worker that knows how to deal with that. Because oftentimes, like, we're asking police to do work that they are not trained for. Mm-hmm. And we're asking police to do a lot of things outside their scope. And I don't necessarily think that's appropriate either if the cops don't have the training for that for us to even ask them to do those things. So I think, you know, keeping police to the work that they're used to be doing, you know, putting down minor disturbances, making sure that people aren't, you know, doing these regular nuisance crimes, graffiti, peeing on the street, trying to break in cars, things like that. You know, I think that is the necessary service that police offer, especially in a small town, right? But for other things like drug overdoses, mental health crises, domestic disputes, those are better handled by crisis counselors, mental health workers, people like that. So I think, you know, bringing in the Department of Health and Human Services to work with our police department and taking some of that police department funding, not defunding the police completely, but, you know, reallocating some of that police money into different resources that can help the police better deal with these problems that are happening in our community, I think is so important. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what needs to happen. You know, on this on this huge scale, we hear defund the police, and that's language that's often really scary to people. But I think, you know, taking these resources and reallocating them to kind of a more community policing model is what's really important. So that is interesting. I've heard the argument that, yeah, you could send like a social worker to a domestic violence situation, but you know, what social worker is gonna want to go by themselves? Without a police officer, because if you send them there, I mean, they do they, that. They do that currently. Often, oftentimes, I mean, if the police don't get called on a situation, or if there's it's like a wealth, the... or if like there's a welfare check and mm. they're going to a welfare check and there's a problem taking place, they are the ones dealing with that. But that seems like that the could police get haven't been called. Dangerous. So, I, mean, I mean, there's just... al- there's always backup, and I think that the police should be there for violent crimes. I mm. think that police should be involved for that. I think police should be. You know, probably even more trained as we saw with uh, the Josiah Lawson case that police were not necessarily trained in proper ways to take evidence and proper ways to, like, deal with a crime scene because there was some new police that were the first ones responding to that scene and they were not trained necessarily in those proper ways to take evidence and to take witness testimony and things like that. So making sure that there is either a, an experienced like evidence technician, evidence person, cop on staff when these violent crimes are happening to make sure that everything is being taken into account and all of, you know, Mm -hmm. the different parts of a crime scene are being dealt with properly. Um, but also, you know, especially for nonviolent crimes and stuff, I don't think necessarily if it's in, you know, the the person who is either committing or is the victim of the crime's best interest that, you know, the police are the ones responding. Because a lot of times, I mean, I mean, it depends also on the disposition of the officer and, you know, the training that they have and their level of empathy with certain situations and stuff. Because humans are so different and Mm -hmm. you know the way that people interact with each other are so different you could have you know a good experience with one person while the other person says oh my god i hate that person they are so mean and they are horrible you know so everybody has different experiences with people so just making sure that you know the community's experience with either you know the officers that are responding or the crisis counselors that are responding whoever it is is positive i mean that really creates like a positive feedback loop in your community and if people are getting the services that they need and having positive experiences with the people that are supposed to be helping them in society then you know it it creates an overall better sense of community and you know there's less problems and people are less likely to cause problems in these communities too if there's positivity Mm -hmm. so 
it seems like a lot of that ties back to training. Yeah. And I wonder, Huge. I yeah. think, I don't know, from my perspective, it seems like, you know, if you cut the budget, a lot of that is going to, it's going to hurt their ability to train. I think if anything, we should be making them train more and having like CIT training and... Well, again, it's, I mean, taking, you know, seeing, taking a look at, a close look at a budget mm-hmm. and seeing, you know, where are we putting our money? Where do we want to put our money? It might not even be taking any money away from the police department, but just taking it from certain areas of it and shifting it, it into training, mm-hmm. into, you know, maybe hiring a mental health counselor to work for the police department, you know, as as part of that. So it, it just takes a good look at the budget and seeing you know, what is being done here. And, you know, the Arcata Police Department already cut their budget a lot in, in the face of COVID because... So did the yeah. EPD. Yeah. By like, like a million dollars yeah, or same something. same with Arcata. Yeah. Jesus. <laughs> Which how... Well, they're getting like, yeah, Arcata Police Department's budget is like $6.2 million a year. It's, it's a lot of money that they, you know, to staff officers, to staff office staff, maybe mm-hmm. vehicle abatement, animal control. Like I said, the juvenile diversion, like a lot of different things like that. So th- there's a lot of different departments with underneath the the umbrella of the police department but and yeah. staffing was hard to begin with i don't think epd ran full staffed i don't think the yeah. county ran full staffed and no. i can't imagine after all this a lot of people are going to be rushing out to you know push the black and blue i think it's going to be yeah it's going to be tough territory well and i think you know and again it depends on what happens in november but i think there already is a lot of push on like the national scale and from you know national police unions and unions and stuff to start implementing some reform and especially in arcada too the police chief is very open to the idea of like community review and mm-hmm. the community being involved in decisions that the police are making and being involved in looking at the police budget and you know the city of arcada's police chief is very open to that and is very welcoming to community involvement in that so I think that's going to be a big first step in just kind of looking at the department, looking at the budget, and trying to just make Arcata the safest and most comfortable place for citizens possible. So mm-hmm. I think it's important to do I that. I did not know that those were new cops on the Josiah case. That seems Two like them. that's yeah. like... Oh, no. Mm-hmm. That speaks volumes on training. That yeah. Like they need... You, you well, shouldn't they, send they anybody put, out. Right after that. I mean, they put trained. a lot of... implement. They implemented a lot of changes. I mean, after that, after, you know, the, the city outrage... In, in response to the Lawson case mm-hmm. uh, with training and making sure that, you know, certain cops have oversight and if they're not fully trained yet, making sure that they have somebody that they're working with to keep them in check and things like that. So I, how long has that juvenile intervention program been going on? Do you know when that was implemented? Um, I do not know exactly when it was implemented, That's but I know really it's been a part of uh, APD for a while. Yeah. Do you know if EPD does that as well? sure that seems like that would be a really valuable resource yeah i did not know they did that that's really cool mm-hmm. have you felt like that's been effective yeah I, I, I know i know somebody that works for that department and stuff too and mm-hmm. just you know works a lot with parents and works a lot with students and feels like it's just very rewarding and that it is helpful to a lot of kids and helps them you know really reintegrate back into their school environment and things like that so i think it's important yeah, you know, that's especially really cool. to make sure that kids finish school and everything like that and get their diploma and especially yeah. when they're young like that like locking them up it's not going to do anything yeah. it's not going to help society and it's not going to help them so yeah well 
do you have anything else you want to add about your campaign? Any I don't think so. We've been talking for a while. I, know, I realized did, my phone was ringing. I was like, oh my gosh, how is like it already that time? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, you wanna... that's all I really got to say. Uh, I mean, if anybody else is listening and you want to read more about my platform, uh, I got a website. It's uh, Sarah for the number four, arcadacity.com. Uh, you know, you can email me there, follow me on Facebook and Instagram, all that stuff. So yeah, Sweet. that's what I got. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah, on. I had a great Eric. time talking to yeah, you. Yeah, it was fun. All right. Thanks. Awesome. Woo!